Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode, we look back 30 years later at the seminal short film series Lip Sync with Ardman Animations. Hello, everyone. Ben Mitchell here, joined by Steve Henderson. And Alex Dudok DeWitt is also with us. We are talking with the folks from Ardman, it being the 30th anniversary of Lip Sync, a collection of films that pre-Wallace and Gromit kind of put them on the map in a really big way. Alex, welcome. Hi. Hi, guys. How's it going? I'm hanging in. How about you, Steve? I'm hanging in as well. Yeah, like a, like a jaguar perched on the, the end of a tree in a zoo. There you go. Topical. I'm like a I'm like a little terrapin in a wheel, <laughs> and Ben is a hippo having a poo. <laughs> Always. <laughs> yeah, this is exciting, isn't it? We're uh, we're talking about what might be uh, well, possibly one of my favourite series of films, uh, and we're joined by a special guest. So it's great to have you along the uh, podcast, Alex, to talk about uh, Ardman. I mean, uh, uh, Ardman a, a big part in your kind of animation vocabulary. Admin are a big part. I mean, um, I was just thinking about this b- before coming on. When did I? I didn't really discover admin. I feel like they just kind of seeped into my life from very, very early on. So the lip sync series was it came out in in 1989, the year before I was born. And uh, as far back as I can remember, I was watching uh, well, Creature Comforts in particular, which is one of the five films in the series. Um. I don't know if we had it on video or if it was played on TV often, probably a bit of both. And then um, in primary school, we had a slightly renegade teacher who would show us, instead of showing us the curriculum designated videos, or, you know, educational or whatever, she would put on these films, lip sync, um, all of them. And some of them aren't really targeted at primary school kids, but yeah. I loved them. <laughs> they, they made an impression on me. And uh, so, yeah. And then obviously Wallace and Gromit and later Chicken Run were part of my um, animation diet, like they were for pretty much everyone in the UK at the time. But okay. Lip Sync was there from the beginning as well. Yeah. I can't imagine going equipped, going down well with primary school children. No. <laughs> Be kind of like a scared straight type deal. <laughs> I don't think we saw going equipped, but I remember watching a uh, next, which I guess has a kind of educational value in that it illustrates every single play of Shakespeare in the space of five minutes, mm. but thus saving the teacher a lot of time, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I remember watching Ident, which is the, the the quite punkish kind of surreal uh, entry in the series. Yeah, definitely those two and and uh, Creature Comforts were there at the beginning. Ident's one of the ones that I think improved a lot with age. I always liked it a lot as a kid because I just assumed it was just completely random and nonsensical. Yeah. And then, you know, returning to it again in my 20s, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's just my life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of weird parody of the Daily Grind. you got this kind of sausage character who wakes up and then wanders through a kind of maze-like reimagining of all the environments that you'd go through as a normal adult. So he goes to the office, he goes to the pub, 
he, he's got a kind of drunken walk home from the pub. Uh, he's assailed by his little pet dog when he when he comes home. And yeah, you're right. Once you see it as an adult, you start to see it as that pattern of the grind and how, you know, how soul, destroy, how soul destroying it can be. But as a child, I saw it as just this kind of anarchic piece of nutsness, you know. Yeah. Got these little sausage characters and there's no actual language used in that film. There's, there's borderline words, some some sounds which sound like uh, English words if you strain, but for the most part, it's just kind of garbled grunts and uh, which makes it really appealing to a kid. You're watching it and you're like, what the hell? What the hell is this? <laughs> Sometimes I do wonder if they took Golly and Barry Purvis aside and were like, you remember it's called lip sync, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we should maybe put it in a little bit of context. So the Oldman studio had just, it was founded in the seventies and early on Dave Sproxton and Peter Lord, the two co-founders made these, uh, wonderful two short films called, um, under the kind of rubric of animated conversations. It was a BBC series. And these two films they made were based around, um, essentially surreptitious recording of people in public. At least one of them was a surreptitious recording of a homeless man who is a little bit confused and looking for a, a meal from the Samaritans or whoever it is. Uh, and the Ardman guys recorded him, you know, wandering into this office or this police station, I can't quite remember, and asking where he can get his meal. And they animated that. And the format worked so well that then Channel 4, which had just been founded and come in with lots of money and a remit to, to finance experimental or adult-oriented animation, they commissioned five more films in that vein, which were called Conversation Pieces. And uh, for that, the Ardman guys recorded um, journalists in an office, you know, uh, a, a salesman, a door-to-door salesman on, on his beat. And... Um, then Channel 4 liked it and commissioned some more. And that's what turned into Lip Sync. But by the time they, by the time they got to Lip Sync, they were, their ambitions had grown. Um, and they weren't just, um, you know, they wanted to go beyond the kind of candid Vox Pop recordings that they'd been working with at that point. Um, and so they started actually basically staging interviews. Their, their subjects were no longer being... Um, the subjects were fully aware of being recorded. They hadn't forgotten that the cam, that the the mic was there. Um, and in some of the films, for example, Creature Comforts, some of the interviews, you know, are, are, they sound like they were actually staged. You know, there's that you got the Jaguar talking about how he loves meat. <laughs> uh, you feel like the, the the person, the Brazilian student who was being interviewed at that point was in on the secret that he would eventually be animated as an animal. Mm. Um, the, the other two films using dialogue in, in the Lipsing series uh, are more directly kind of documentary style interviews. But still, they're, they're, the people who, who are talking are very aware that they're being interviewed and there's something quite self-conscious about their delivery. Um, and then in the final two films, which is Next and Ident that we've already talked about, um, there's no dialogue at all. And so really what you've got is a series of five films which are all very loosely structured around the idea of communication and how, you know, how we communicate, like the earlier films were. But they're all pushing against that theme in different directions so that they actually become something totally different and, and quite 
quite a scatter shot in a way. Mm. It's really interesting. The I've I've heard the um, creature comfort story before that um, Nick Park actually did try to record people in a zoo. You know, uh, uh, he hung around a, a monkey cage and, and put a re- recording device there for people to say stuff like, you know, look at the silly monkeys or look at the, you know, look at the silly pulling funny faces and things like that. And then he was going to turn, flip it on its head, but it didn't quite work. Yeah, I mean, the, the sound quality was rubbish for a start. <laughs> um, the zoo weren't really happy with setting him up with, with you know, with, with having him interview people in there. So he eventually gave up on that idea and just went around the corner where his mates ran a corner shop and uh, just interviewed the, the family who ran the corner shop about what they thought about the zoo. Mm. And there he kind of developed this idea that he could actually interview people about their own living conditions and then animate them as animals so that it sounds like they're talk- you know it's, it, it's, it sounds like animals talking about their own conditions in a zoo and then yeah. and then with some of the interviewees it's, you feel like they're playing up to their the animal character that they will become almost as if Nick Parker's told them look mate you're going to be a jaguar so you know <laughs> talk jaguar to me so there's all of that it's 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 a really like it, it's interesting because as as um Dave Spruxton one of the two co-founders tells me in this uh interview I conducted with them they they didn't see themselves as documentary filmmakers he said you know we we weren't really interested in that anymore we'd done that with the earlier conversation pieces animated conversations but we we weren't actually that wasn't our forte and we found that candid uh recordings of ordinary people as they go about their daily activities isn't always that interesting it yields it yields a lot of just redundant dialogue that you can't turn into a film so for, for lip sync they were consciously staging everything already um and you've got this great kind of through line through all the films if there's anything that unites them is this idea of not communication so much as performance and mm. um, the two the, the interviewees in the three films with dialogue they might be genuine people you know talking about their own experiences but there, there's something self-conscious about the way they're doing it um in war story it's a, it's an old man who's recounting his experiences in the second world war the blitz and um you know apparently peter lord who directed that film told me you know they recorded two hours with this guy and it was brilliant but then something went wrong with the recorder and they all of that was lost and so they had to do the interview again but the old the old man just basically word for word recounted his anecdotes again <laughs> So he was basically, you know, he was a raconteur. He was used to telling these stories and he was performing them for the benefit of, of Ardman. Wow. Um, and then in the other two films, you've got Shakespeare performing his own plays. I mean, in another way, that's the most self-conscious film about performance that you can get. And that's mm-hmm. by Barry Purvis, who would explore that theme for performance over and over again in his very theatrical films. Um, and then finally, you've got Ident, where the, this character is basically performing different versions of himself to different people in his life, depending on what they expect of him. So he goes to work and he puts on one face, you know, he literally puts on, changes face in the film or, or changes hats or whatever. And you feel like it's this, this person who doesn't really know how to be himself and he's having to put on a front wherever he goes. Uh, that's what struck me when I watched all these films in a row. It's great work. I mean, I, I think there are also, there's almost a timeless quality to to well, something like Ident, uh, absolutely, would that kind of can fit into uh, nowadays? It fit into you know, it could have been made uh, you know fifty years ago, let alone thirty, and it would still make perfect sense. I mean, the, the films themselves for me um, have a real uh, p- 
personal value to them, given the fact that these are the films that got me into animation seriously. It was these films that I watched and realized that somebody made them and that they could have been, you know, that there was uh, a future in that. You know, as a, as a kid, I think somebody came around to the house with a videotape on them with um, Wallace and Gromit. And then at the end of it, it had War Story. And uh, I remember, uh, I must have been six, seven years old, um, the kid uh, who uh, shared the videotape with us watched Wallace and Gromit, you know, a typical uh, child-friendly, wacky kind of uh, caper, and then went, right, I'm not watching the next one, it's boring, and got up and legged it. But I was absolutely mesmerised at this, you know, this tale, this old man, it was War Story that was on next. Um, and I was absolutely enchanted by it and just, you know, absolutely loved it. So when he went out to play in the sunshine like a normal kid, that's that's the path I chose, the staying in the dark and watching weird animation. And an animator was born. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and for you, Ben, where, where did you where did you get involved in this kind of like, you know, these kind of uh, staples of uh, Aardman history? It's a similar story, uh, you know, I mean, everyone knew Wallace and Gromit, especially when uh, The Wrong Trousers came out, that really pushed it into everyone's uh, lives. And I had always liked animation, I was like, you know, it was one of the sort of hobby things that I'd do, and my dad would help me kind of set up little stop-motion experiments with a camera and action figures, and... Along the way, I got one of these video VHS anthologies, probably the same one. And something rather dismal, I have to confess, is that, you know, I've over the years, of course, parted ways with pretty much every VHS cassette I own. But there are a couple that I just can't get rid of Hmm. for, like, certain sentimental value, and that Ardman video is one of them. (laughs) It's sort of, you know, even though I don't really have anything left, I think that we'll play it. And um, it's all online in HD (laughs) anyway. But the rewatchability and the wonderful thing about VHS anthologies, the way you could force them on your friends when they would come round. <laughs> it wasn't just lip sync, it had some of the uh, conversation pieces ones as well. And it's interesting the point you bring up about how, you know, they really acknowledged that something wasn't really gelling with, you know, just kind of letting the audio run. Because those ones, I did find a bit of a struggle, especially like the one set in the newspaper office. Yeah. <laughs> but Going Equipped, even though it wasn't really a very kiddie film, was one I would quite often, you know, watch. And I was sort of fascinated by it because I didn't quite understand why they would do a film like that, especially when it was sort of paired with something so jovial as War Story or Creature Comforts. And, you know, I didn't, I found quite sort of intimidating in that, you know, anarchic, surreal way not understanding what it was really about. Yeah. And next, I didn't quite fully appreciate what was even going on. I eventually kind of pieced together, oh, okay, so the guy who looks like Shakespeare is actually Shakespeare. And then it all kind of <laughs> yeah. fell into place. It's one of the... I remember having to have the ending explained to me, because I didn't really recognize the significance of that, you know, at 10 years old. But I always felt bad for the doll, in next like the doll really goes through the ringer every single one of shakespeare's plays yeah but that that doll it goes through the ringer but according to barry who who animated it um it's still on fine form he's still got the the puppet still animatable today he says wow he blew a massive chunk of his budget just on that puppet Mm. um 
which was designed by Peter Saunders, McKinnon and Saunders. Just beautiful, beautifully nuanced articulation and movement. It was, it was designed under a pseudonym, wasn't it? Cause he was he was working for uh, Cosgrove Hall at the time, so Pete, Peter couldn't say that he was actually it was actually Peter doing the the beautiful work. He was down as an anagram, like uh, I think it was Rupert de Sands, <laughs> something kind of U- European exotic like that. <laughs> do we have do we have favourites among these series? I mean, it's a ridiculous question, uh, but I mean, do you have a, uh, an actual favourite among the uh, the Go and Equip series? Among the lip sync series, um, sorry, lip sync series. I think, like with Ben, I agree that the one that's gained the most for me over time is Ident, mm. which I love now because it's it's like like we we're saying, it's got this kind of punkish feel, like anything goes, which. Um, I was going to say you don't get it that often with Ardman, but you do. That's that's not that's a lie. It actually comes up again in in Rex the Runt, the series that they did about ten years later, which was also directed by Golly Richard Golly Starzak, a slightly irreverent kind of humour. And at the same time, it works. I don't I mean works as a kind of um, commentary on you know what it means to go out to work every day and not feel like your true self, which is something that's really come into its own as I as I've started going into work and not feeling my true self. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and I think, so I think, yeah, I mean, the most celebrated is, is um, Creature Comforts and it won the Oscar, it won the BAFTA, it won everything. And um, it deserves it, you know, it's, it's an, like a radically kind of uh, nuanced bit of animation. But it, it tends to overshadow the others and, and unfairly because mm. they've all got, they're all, they're all just going off in different directions and they're all so interesting. Every single one of them. So I think at the moment it's Ident. That's the one in the middle of my heart. Yeah. Oh, are you agreeing, Ben? Uh, do you would you say Ident? That was definitely, I think, my overriding favourite. That was one I would return to quite a lot. Sort of even when I was in that kind of lull between actually being a fan of animation and being an active animator, I definitely kind of had a fascination with it. But. I don't know, I always had this immense appreciation for the craft of Next and the music in Next as well. Mm. And, you know, the humor in War Story and the way that, you know, Peter Lord has this wonderful gift for playing with the physics of the world, the way the house is kind of, like, sinking. (laughs) You know, all sorts of little touches. I was also enormously fond of Creature Comforts, and I think that's sort of inevitable. Like, it's hard to not, you know, love that film. It's a film that, again, kind of improves with age because you especially when you sort of go into the world of um living on your own uh, having to deal with letting agents and apartment buildings and communities and <laughs> you know hashtag adulting just you know living in the world and feeling like you're in a zoo i think probably like at the end of the day if i kind of consider like that sentimental value probably i didn't still kind of nudges ahead of it so just because whenever golly has talked about it in public he's always seemed kind of self-conscious about it because it's kind of i guess it has that sort of rushed look to it but that always struck me as kind of you know part of the point and part of the appeal yeah it's like an anarchic charm really sort yeah. of we, we talk about it a bit in the interview and um it's actually there's there's a nice little moment where i'm talking to golly and um barry about the music in their films because those are the only two films which which use music in, in the series and barry describes it first he says yeah you know so we had to time it mathematically i sat down with the composer we like worked out all the beats like it took ages 
And then Golly was like, yeah, for, for us, we just kind of picked up objects and just saw what noises they made and <laughs> just kind of went with that. And <laughs> that kind of sums up the, the whole approach to the film and the respective films. It's punk. Yeah, it's punk. He was a punk. Yeah, it, 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 that, that really shines through there. I, I mean, for me, I, I, I do have a soft spot for Ident. It's a film that grows as you grow and, you know, you can keep watching it and become more and more kind of engaged with it as you, as you grow older, even though it's it's a lot of nonsense and a lot of fun when you're a kid. But then, you know, you grow older with it and, and, and it makes sense. Uh, for me, I would say that possibly Next is my favourite film of the series. There's something about that, something that really kind of, for me, as good as screenplayers, as good as Tchaikovsky is, as good as uh, all of Barry's other works... That's the film that always resonates with me, and it's it's such a good part of this series. It's such a refreshing take. Without, you know, obviously uh, saying any of the other films are bad, I think we need to spend a moment kind of praising Peter Lord because here he is uh, uh, as animators or actors. He's acting uh, in an intense piece of drama, but then going and acting in this sort of surreal comedy as well with this kind of uh, linear linear comedic film which, you know, works incredibly well. So, you know, I think as much as Creature Comforts is praised for its um, groundbreaking, uh, wonderful twist on, on, on the way that interviews are done in animation and this kind of wonderfully inventive uh, creatures living in, you know, people talking and all that type of stuff. Um, I think that, you know, we, we, we often kind of forget the, the efforts of, of Peter Lord in this series. And the fact that Peter Lord... The, the 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 little gestures that his characters do the subtlety peter lord did that and and nick park to some to a large extent learned that from peter lord from from watching his films when when he was a student yeah just a little the, the fact that you're not animating a kind of zany dynamic movement like in a lot of you know like a tex avery cartoon but just a little little hand just a little finger tapping the pipe or the little rub of the forehead with the forefinger or you know th- those little minute things Peter Lord is a master. Is a master at some full display in those in in War Story and going equipped. Very kind of empathetic. Another moment that kind of shows off a rather good intuition of Peter Lord as a director is he leaves in that bit where they're not sure if it's recording or there's something going on with the recorder, yeah. <laughs> and that kind of moment that doesn't serve the story or the film at all, but it serves you know, fleshing out this character and really giving him a kind of humanity that I imagine wouldn't have been a very done thing in films at the time in that way. Yeah. Like seeing a moment like that for a kind of, for a sort of comedy value. I think in terms of directing as well, there's a beautiful moment in going equipped. And we must remember that this is back in a day before, you know, uh, uh, after effects and, and uh, you know, uh, a lot of comping was done. Everything was done in camera. And uh, there's a moment where a car drives past in going equipped. And considering that the character's still animated while that happens and the the light moves across, uh, and there's no kind of motion control rig, there's no type of, you know, that must have had to be done by eye or with a ruler or, you know, really kind of going into this thing. These are... These, these are Herculean films. You know, these, the tasks used in putting these things together are not done with a, a couple of clicks or a, a, an After Effects plug-in. When, when I was saying earlier that by this point they would become more ambitious with the, the concept of um, lip-syncing, they'd also become much more ambitious uh, technically since their last series and 
they spent years doing loads of adverts and basically honing their craft and and it shows you've got you've got these very kind of like there's a there's a moment in war story where the camera kind of the camera is constantly panning and zooming and moving around and it kind of moves through eras you see the old man and then within the same shot it kind of the camera kind of zooms past him into the man's earlier incarnation and we're seeing his memory suddenly and there's a lot going on mm. fabulous films agreed Great. So you had the pleasure uh, of, of having a very extensive interview uh, with uh, some of the creators, some of the directors uh, of the series, Alex. I did, yeah. I, I, need, I need to kind of duff my hat to them because I noticed it was the 30th anniversary of Lip Sync. I wanted to do an interview with, with them, with the people behind the series. I emailed Dave Sprox and Peter Lord. To their credit, they replied immediately within, the, within a few hours saying, let's do it. Um, I came around to their studio, a big building full of natural light, beautiful. We sat down in a circle, me, Dave, Pete, Golly and Barry. They plied me with Earl Grey and cookies. Um, and we talked for two hours uh, on and off record, um, just chatting. And I think I've got to give a shout out to Barry here because he doesn't live in Bristol, but kind of prompted by this, this interview, this project, he came down to Bristol from Manchester. Um, and I think it was the first time that the four of them had been together in a while. And, and the interview kind of took on this character of a kind of reminisce, reminiscence, a kind of trip down memory lane. And so it made my job easy because they started asking each other questions. <laughs> and I was kind of sitting back and eating my cookies. You know? um, and, they, and, they were, and it was great. They were, they were so, um, so, just so generous with their time. And, you know, without naming names, I've, I've dealt with studios or artists who are kind of on a similar stature to them or even not quite at that stature who just chuck bureaucratic hurdles at me and just make all kinds of demands and, you know, want to, want to have, want to retain total control over every aspect of the interview. And here there was just a sense of complete trust and, and, and easiness, um, which made for great. I mean, they, they were just asking each other questions about things I couldn't have ever known of through any kind of research and you'll see it in the you'll hear it in the podcast you'll see it in the transcript if you want to read it but it, it made the interview quite special in that way fantastic yeah good good eggs all of them I do find that this is one of those industries where fortunately enough the decent people who are genuinely kind of warm and welcoming and forthcoming tend to outweigh the ones who were like divas and like, no, talk to my people or yeah. it's a good industry for that. You would think we'd all be miserable given the nature of animation and how much you have to spend in the dark and the back issues and everything. But no, most people are pretty jovial. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. The diva count is still reassuringly low. Still. Let's hope it stays that way. I think it probably helps that it's about lip sync, which is important, but they, they you know, they, they probably talk about it a good deal less than they do about Wallace and Gromit, say, or, or more recent works. So um, we talked to them five years ago on the 25th anniversary. I say we, you guys. <laughs> ben. <laughs> the point that it kind of comes to my mind, we have had, I think, everyone on the podcast a couple of times each at this point, but being able to get this many of them together like in the space and then it's it's kind of like when you see them on stage or at an event there's a quality of the 
conversation that I guess just becomes more like they bring stuff out of each other because they have so much history together. This is the first interview I've ever done where the interviewee starts opening up about people he got off with on set. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and just to explain also, initially Nick Park, who directed Creature Compass, obviously was going to sit in on the interview with us, so there was going to be all five of them plus me. And in the end, he couldn't because of of a family commitment. But what that meant was that we were able to give oxygen to the other four films, the ones that aren't Creature Comforts, which get talked about less. And we could really kind of focus on um, some of the creative uh, decisions that they made on those films. And that was fun as well. Well, uh, I'm sure at this point, people who are listening, uh, vibrating and chomping on the bit, just play the interview. (laughs) Uh, So we we should probably uh, let them hear it. Shall we uh, turn it over to Peter Lord, David Sproxton, Barry Purvis, and Golly, a.k.a. Richard Starzak, talking to Alex Dudok DeWitt. I'll get you all to introduce yourself very briefly, uh, in particular, what your role was in the Lip Sync series. So, Golly. I'm Richard Starzak, also known as Golly. made the film Ident. I'm Peter Lord, and I work on both War Story and Going Equipped, he says. Just remembering what they were. <laughs> I'm David Broxton, and I suppose acted as producer on them all to an extent. Helped shoot some of them. I can't remember which. <laughs> I'm Barry Purvis, and I did the Cuckoo in the Nest one next. <laughs> I don't know when the last time it was that you all saw the films, but maybe we could start by going one by one and um, just hearing your, your reflections on the film based on the recent times you've watched it. What, what, what really worked in the film and is there anything that, that didn't? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it was, I was pretty young when, when I made it. It was like my first, outside of college, it was my mm-hmm. first attempt at a, a professional film that would actually be on the telly, which, um, which meant I didn't really know a great deal about storytelling or anything like that. But um, I worked with a writer called Bill Stair, who uh, he wrote the TV series Boone many years ago. I don't know if you remember that. Michael Elphick. With Michael Elphick, yeah. Um, so I had some professional help, which was great, on, on the writing side, which I knew nothing. And um, at the time, I really, and I still do, I, I really loved uh, the, oh God, the artist name, um, the design of the film based on uh, an American artist called Saul Steinberg. I really liked his work, so I kind of tried, I tried to sort of centre it. That that was the that was the look of the film, and I, I think I, I think the idea was to combine surrealism and comedy. Mm-hmm. So I always had this thing that that um, I remember a quote many years ago that if you take surrealism, like in Europe, it became quite dark and weird and sometimes quite sinister, but mm. surrealism went to America and turned into Warner Brothers. You know, <laughs> it, it, it's, sort, it's kind of true, you know, they, they, there's a lot of surrealism in those yeah. early classics. Mm. Which were you closer to then, in your sensibility? Ah, I was split, I think. I kind of, I really liked, um, I, I liked, I've always been a fan of surrealism, and um, I've always been a fan of Warner Brothers cartoons. When I was a, yeah. when I was a kid, like, uh, you literally got one cartoon on TV a week, and it was after the football on a Sunday. I just remember it distinctly, and it, I was always waiting for the cartoon because it was it was so rare to see any yeah. animation at all on TV. But they'd have a um, Roadrunner, or, or, or Tom and Jerry, or Tom and Jerry, yeah. And 
And then I'd spend the sort of evenings with my friend. We'd kind of disseminate it and kind of talk, you know, we'd kind of redo all the sound effects and stuff. It was, mm. it seems ridiculous now when every, everything's available to everyone all the time, you know, mm. but then it was literally five minutes a week. So if, if, if uh, one week they put on the same one as they did last week, I'd be furious, <laughs> you know. It's like I've waited all week and then they put the same <laughs> one they did last week, which they often did, you know, because right. um, it was just a filler. And, um, and then we had Disney time as well on bank holiday Mondays or something. Yeah, yeah. Always American cartoons, though. I think so. Yeah, I didn't know much about British animation at the yeah. time. I kind of, yeah, that kind of sort of came into came into daylight for me more or less the same time when Channel Four started. Mm-hmm. When I was already working for for Ardman by then. Um, so I don't was uh, an attempt to kind of synthesise these influences and. I think so, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's, it's like a chance to make a film. So looking back on it, I, I remember at the time telling myself, don't put all your ideas in, just yeah. focus on one. But in the end, it felt like throwing in everything in the kitchen sink. Yeah. So I kind of look back on it and think that, that, that could have been about four different films. Yeah, <laughs> um, um, yeah we'll, come back, we'll come back to Aiden. Um, if if um, maybe Peter and Dave between going equipped and uh, war stories... Yeah, so they were both, they were both um, sort of in a tradition that we the tradition that we'd been working with for quite yeah. a long time. Go, yeah. So we'd started in '77, I think, mm. with um, Down and Out. Yeah, and it was it was the tradition of working with real soundtracks, found soundtracks, yeah. rather than a written yeah. soundtrack. So that um, in Down and Out, back in the day, we took a. a Recorded down to a Salvation Army hostel and yeah. eavesdropped on what was said, yeah. and we were lucky to to bump into a, a conversation that had a certain, some sort of, certain sort of drama to it, yeah. and then we kind of recreated that in a in a strange semi-documentary kind of style mm. because just just working with real soundtracks gave it this kind of mm. ver- ver- veracity, um, but also it was incredibly difficult because. <laughs> Uh, we wasted uh, time and precious resources with this hidden microphone in places where nothing happened, where there was no drama, no substance, nothing, nothing at all. And so, uh, uh, when we sort of started again on on this series, um, we went for interviews rather than um, re- rather than recorded dialogues. And then we just discovered that. If you do an interview like this one now, mm. actually not like this one now. If, if you take away the the interviewer, it does because because people speaking truthfully, simply, honestly, it does sound incredibly personal and intimate. Mm. It sounds like it's got some great revelation. Is what it sounds like. Mm. Um, just take yes. So that's that's that was the technical approach. Yeah. So yes, and following on from that, so we also realised that the sort of the ad hoc nature of random recordings doesn't really work very well. Um, you record a lot of stuff you never get to use, <coughs> and then we thought, well, who do you, who's good at doing interviews? Mm. So in, in terms of war story, we, we so we we we, t- we made contact with a number of radio journalists mm-hmm. basically. And War Story was came out of a conversation with um, a guy called Peter. Oh, Pete Lawrence. Was Pete Lawrence, who was yeah. BBC Radio Bristol mm. uh, reporter oh, okay. journalist, mm. and he had done a series 
a radio series on Bristol and Blitz. Mm. And we got chatting to him, and he said, you've got to meet this guy, Bill Perry. Mm. Uh, and he did the interview for us mm. with him. And Bill Perry was this lovely character who just sort of turned him on, mm. and that came all these anecdotes. Mm. And again, we would have probably recorded an hour and a half, maybe, yeah. with him. Just a football. Maybe, maybe, maybe more. more. <laughs> I mean, he'd, he'd done quite a lot of work yeah. with, with Pete Lawrence. Yeah. And the other guy we found was a guy called Derek Robinson, who yeah. wrote pieces, yeah. a piece of cake. You yeah. know, he was both a drama writer and indeed a journalist as well. Yeah. And because it's quite, it, to really draw stories out of people, it's quite a specialist skill. Yeah. And he did four or five interviews with us, with various people yeah. um, that we talked about, one of which was the bookie, I think, mm. um, one of which was a female climber, mm. which we didn't use. And he said, I know this young lad who's 21, who's just come out of, come out of prison. Mm. And he'd been tracked for whatever reason, may have come out of something else he was doing. <clears throat> and because we had done um, actually down and out and on probation, mm. which was again dealing with a kind of probationary hostel setup mm. in Bristol, we thought well, we should do a, let's follow that vein. and, and and Derek recorded this, what, as Pete says, kind of became a monologue and, and actually almost was a confession mm. about a young lad, a bright young lad who had just been born on the wrong side of the tracks. So we did a kind of, in a way, classic middle class sort of thing, trying to get inside his head. Mm. All we had was what he was saying mm. and trying to interpret the sort of life he would have had. Uh, that led him down this road, road of petty crime. Mm. I mean, the full interview was really fascinating. We could only use five minutes of it, yeah. but there's some extraordinary stuff in there, mm. uh, which um, Derek drew out of him. So that that approach to using actually good journalists, good radio journalists, mm. really paid off. And when we came to do the, the next sort of creature comforts, and we used the same approach again. We got a bundle of good people, that could all, that could yeah. good interview people, and draw stuff out of people. The funny thing about the, uh, the the first conversation with Pete Lawrence, mm. as, as I as I recall it, is he went to interview this guy, um, Bill, Bill Perry. Perry, thank you, mm. went through, and um, and and came back with this, with I think more, at least that a couple of hours of, of great stuff, you know, hilarious. <laughs> but unfortunately, there was a technical fault with it. Like there was a there was a buzz or something. Yes, like that. There was something so we could, it was unusual. Oh no! But 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 um. He just went back into it again, and and and, and these these were Bill Perry's oft-told stories. You know, he was an old man then. Yeah. He told them to his family, his friends for for decades, probably. So he just more or less did the same whole thing all over again. But so was he known to the the journalist, the radio journalist, yes, as just a local raconteur? Yes, yes, as Dave said, he was he, he was interviewed about the Bristol and the Blitz. Yeah, and he was just a great. Yeah, he was a great. Yeah, and very willing raconteur. We can come back to, to the kind of the strategy, the kind of approach uh, in more detail later. Yeah. But I'm just wondering whether you, I'm curious to know whether you think that to what extent those two films succeed on, on their own terms, and whether one was pulled off better than the other. Or they're very, I mean, they're very different, different stories. What one we played, or what the other thing we learned is, you know, let's, let's play it for laughs. Yeah. Because people like a funny film, and more stories definitely yeah. played for yeah. laughs. Yeah. Um, and going equipped was, you know the inside consciousness of the guy who wanted to get off yeah. the, the criminal conveyor belt yeah. and was desperate to him and knew it was going to be really difficult. And he was very, it was very honest. We got a letter, I think it was that from, we got a letter from some professor, I think, somewhere like um, Colchester University, mm. 
who is a sociologist, saying this is the most responsible program I've seen on, I've seen on TV for many years, yeah. simply because it was a first-person testimony about, don't do what I've done. Yeah. So, yeah. Think, so um, it's kind of interesting, though. Do you know, I was... I don't know if I told you this, Pete. Yeah, I think you've I, I was, um, had my back to the TV, the local news was on, and I heard a voice, and I thought, well, who's that? And I turned round, and it's this old guy. It was the going to quit guy. Was it really? He was, uh, he's been interviewed because his sons had done, I can't remember what it was, I think one of them got stabbed in a <clears throat> drugs raid or something, uh, um, a fight and yeah. carrying a lot of drugs <clears throat> or something like that. It's funny, and it was I, definitely I, him. I, yeah, because I contacted Derek, few years ago, wondering what had happened to him. Yeah. To see whether he. Oh. I think it was to do with a. It was to do with a, um, a prison reform group that I was talking to. And of course, you never know. You know, I, didn't, we, I don't think you ever knew his name. You could recognise no. his voice. Yeah. Derek had lost contact with him years and years ago. But, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was. <clears throat> yeah, I was proud. I was yeah. I'm pleased with the film. Yes, mm. I mean, because it sounds pretty obvious now, I suppose. But to try and make an animated film that didn't try to make you smile at all, mm. was, was a bit, seemed audacious at the time. I mean, obviously, there's thousands of them out there. It's very, um, but for us, it was unusual to try and, yeah, to try and make something that was compelling without the crutch mm. of humour at all. But I, I always remember the atmosphere it created, the melancholy atmosphere. Yeah, that was amazing. The lighting with the mm. water running down. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It was beautiful textural mm. atmosphere to yeah. it, I think. Yeah. What was, was, the, was the, the, the kind of drops running down his face, yeah. were they projected on from yeah. the side or something? So, I mean, technically, it was, yeah, it was, yeah. it was nuts. Yes. So we shot on, so I can't black and white, yeah. you know, showerhead rain onto yeah. a, a window frame, yeah. um, and then pulled a quite on contrast Mm. black and white print from mm. that which we then projected and in actually a, a projector which actually is an old camera mm. <coughs> an old camera and I remember I thought that's quite easy what we'll do we need to get a fair bit of light out of this we'll put a little flash head inside the camera which will be triggered by our shooting camera mm. and it will put enough light on yeah. and we tried this and the photons from the flash being about an inch from the film just baked it yeah. <laughs> that doesn't work so we then found a little 12 volt lamp it was, it was quite it was very much sort of sunset and strings. Yes, yeah. an, an analysis projector, was it? I seem to remember. No, well, we did use a 16mm. We had a 16mm yeah. one for the earlier stuff. Oh, right, yeah. And then we used the old P400 Newman yeah. Sinclair but camera. Were camera you shooting them at the same time? Did no, you shoot um, one first? What? They were pretty well Your shot. two films? I think they were shot serially. I don't think, I think they were more or less one. Because, I mean, Wallstar took it in space. Yeah. They were all space. And yeah. the, the um, Gurney equip set was fairly spacious as well. And we had, you know, two lights on a tripod mm. for the headlights and they were kind of being tracked across yeah. the studio yeah. floor, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So tech, from that point of view, I mean, you know, Barry's right, it looked, it's got it a lot of atmosphere. And, and there's a sense of, there's a very movie yeah. in the low sense of mm. I think it was, it was probably influenced by um, Blade Runner, which, which, yeah. which dates it. Of course. Which dates it, because <laughs> I think that, because um, they yeah. used that in Blade Runner, they sat in the car and you can see the, the reflection yes. of yeah. rain tricking yeah. down their faces. Some of and worrish kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. I think Mr Hitchcock might have got that. Yeah, I'm sure, I mean, I'm <laughs> sure it was the first. Yeah, yeah yes, not the yeah. first. Uh, yeah. Before we delve into more, more detail about the project, the, the series as a whole yeah. in the background, uh, Barry, what's, what's your take on next now? Well, listening to the others talk today, there was a brief moment where I thought to go out into the streets of Bristol 
and ask people about Shakespeare. I knew I wanted to do something about Shakespeare. Um, and that never actually happened. <laughs> and then I thought, somebody told me uh, in Huckleberry Finn, the boys meet a traveling actor and he does this Cod Shakespeare that he mentions every, every play of Shakespeare in this Cod Shakespeare. And I read it and it's actually only two, two plays, Romeo and Juliet and King Lear or something yeah. is a Cod scene. But I, I had in my idea, I wanted to do the complete works of Shakespeare in this five minutes. Yeah. Um, I don't know where that came from. Um, and I did have in my mind it was going to be all singing, all dancing, spectacular with pyramids and woods near Athens and everything. And the budget, which wasn't small by any means, allowed me one puppet, one major puppet. Mm. I thought, well, that's good. I'll rethink it about that. That it's one puppet. Make it about Shakespeare performing one puppet. Mm. So the budget sort of dictated it in the end. Um, but I sort of, we would just discussing now what the actual brief of the five films was. Mm. I think it was to play with language, um, different forms of language, mm. recollected, recollected language or gibberish. And I, I went peculiar and used body language, I think. Mm. Um, you have symbolic language, I guess, and I don't you have arrows and... Um, yeah. Kind of, yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> Letters being spouted out by these characters. Yeah, I, th I think that there, there was a particular piece in the middle where there's uh, two guys meet and they yeah. kind of talk in yeah. man language. Yeah, yeah. But it was nice. I actually wanted to do the whole film like that with this kind of nice rhythmic, almost yeah. sort of poetic kind of gibberish, but yeah. uh, that was just, that would have. I tried to do that work with Arthur Smith, who was one of the voices, you know, and um, he was, but we just couldn't do, I just realised it would take months and months and months just to, to get a soundtrack, so I just used that bit. Uh, uh, did you script the grunts? <laughs> I mean, how did, you, how did you direct your voice actors? Well, yeah, I directed most, yeah. most of them, and they, they cut, I think I shot a lot of it first, and then they, they responded to... Yeah visuals but there was one particular bit that i'd seen arthur smith do on stage which mm. was uh which was gibberish but you can understand what he was saying you yeah. know chaz as as he yes yes what chaz you know it's all there's a lovely sort of rhythm to it and I, i'd love to have done a whole film like that i think who was arthur smith arthur smith is uh is he's it's on Radio 4 a lot. Um, he's a, basically, he was a, he's a stand-up comedian, right. is, is what he was. Is, but he's on a lot of the comedy shows. He's still shows. around now, yeah. He's still on quiz shows. He, he plays Edinburgh every year. Um, you, he's got a very rough sort of... Yeah. Essex yeah. voice. Very funny. Yeah. Very I, funny guy. I did have one line of dialogue in the film, mm. which was spoken by Roger Rees, who was at the time artistic director of Brisbane three years ago, which was very sad. Mm. Um, but at that time, he told me there were two Shakespeare plays he hadn't been in. And I think he got to, to be in them eventually, so he had done every Shakespeare, so mm. it seemed an appropriate voice. Mm. Yeah. And it's just a gorgeous voice. Mm. He's a great actor. I was still high from Nicholas Nickleby days, I think, mm. where he's played Nicholas Nickleby. Mm. Going back to your point about what the commission was. Mm. Yes. The commission actually went back about five or six years. Mm. 
um, to the, to the Jamie Isaacs saying yeah. we'll have ten of those. He had seen yeah. Down and Out, yeah, and said we'll have ten of those by our first week of transmission, yeah, which was say was about eight or nine months ago. Well, away. Yeah. So we did the first five, and we were a year late in delivering them. Okay. And then, and they got us into commercials, and that put quite a delay mm. in getting the other five out. Mm. <clears throat> By which time, was Paul, we went to Paul Madden, or we went to Paul Madden. Paul Madden, who had commissioned the first five, but he was very hands-off. Yeah. And he was mostly off doing other stuff, mostly documentaries, in fact, I think. Mm. So we had a pretty free hand, and yeah. there wasn't a kind of, I want more to be around sort of language or whatever yeah. it was, he was happy to have five, five minute films. Right? Yeah. Um, so we had really quite a free hand on them. We thought, so, you know, going equipped was distinct, let's do one kind of along the on-probation lines. Yeah. That'll satisfy that sort of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Realising the funnier films sort of played better, so War Story yeah. played for gags. And, and of course, Creature Comforts, yeah. it was in the mix. And that was sort of halfway between, really. Mm. And, and that an interesting story there because Nick started to interview at the zoo, mm. hit a little bit of a wall because of mm. the authorities, people didn't want to talk about stuff in the zoo, acoustic and all that technical stuff. So we said, well, look, turn the whole thing on its head. Why don't you just interview your mates about how they found living in, in Brisker and put those into the mouths of animals? Yeah. Mm. Um, and, and it just fell into place very, very quickly then for him. Mm. So, so Paul Madden was the commissioning editor, not just for animation, but for a bunch of things. But yeah, and 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 he was happy with a, a very broad pitch. Well, I remember when we showed him. I mean, we showed him a storyboard for Creature Comforts, and it was yeah. like a sheet. Yeah, with like six pictures of animals on it. We hadn't recorded it. We just said it's about it's about animals in the zoo. Yeah. Okay, I can't remember what we showed him for Iden. I've got no idea. I can't remember at all. Oh. I wrote, he didn't say okay, he was just yeah. a bit bemused. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, Channel Falls remit at the time was, you know, this very different, very diverse yeah. stuff. And it wasn't costing them a lot of money, to be yeah. honest. It wasn't a huge risk, so they were like, very happy to have... But it was a good budget. It was a de- there were decent budgets. Killed for, for that budget. <laughs> <laughs> there were decent yeah. budgets. Were, um, I, I do remember how much they were. Yeah, do you? you? Yes, I do. Oh, how much well, max cost fifty thousand. Yeah, yeah, that's right. About that. Which, uh, yes. yeah. when you Five think about minutes. thirty years ago, so mm. ten thousand pounds a minute. Ten thousand pounds, which a was yeah. a pretty good budget. Oh. Mm. But some yes. of that money was, was yours, right? So some of that was Ardman money in Epstein Core. Uh, no, pretty well. No, it all came oh. out of it was all Channel Four. All Channel Four. Yeah. yeah. But that's what they did. They kind of put some decent budget, and also they said the whole point of it was there's a decent budget. Keep some bit back to get to your next project. Yeah. Yeah. That was yes. they wanted to see a markup in the budget to say, look, we want you to do another project. Yeah. We're not just going to take this one that's it. We want you to do more. Yeah. 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 So there was that sense of a great sense of hope actually. Yeah, um, that's actually, true. Yeah. yeah. My memory of the whole thing is that is that we we sat around as a group, so that would be us us four and Nick Park, mm. uh, and not for not very long, maybe in the pub we we with chucked ideas around to to try and link them th- thematically I mean probably a lang- you know, we settled on language at the end which is a, yes. which is fine that was fine that was a good link but I think we were I think we were I think we were thinking that they'd be in some sense thematically linked and that would make them feel more like a, a, a whole you know but, but Lipsy could, wasn't the original title was it? no no Armature Theatre. Armature Theatre. Yeah, Armature Theatre. That was your idea. That was yours. I think we decided that 
armature didn't mean anything. Yeah. Right. <laughs> to anybody. <laughs> 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 We almost had signals, didn't we? Yes, there was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, there was. I mean, that, that, that's funny because me, when I watch it and try and kind of draw a link between them, the first thing that jumps out at me, which links all five, is, is performance more than language. Mm-hmm. It's, um, in the case of Ident, it's about uh, people having to perform in their day to day lives to live yeah. up to expectations. Obviously, you've got Shakespeare performing his own works. Uh, and then essentially you've got Vox Pops where people start putting on, well, they're self-conscious mm. to an extent and they're kind of performing their own life story. That was, for me, what jumped out. I'll buy that. What were some of the other ones we discussed? Well, Golly reminded me just now that we discussed it being about well, men's things. I don't know what those would be precisely. Issues of masculinity in various absurd ways, but... Yeah, well, your well, characters did have a certain male gender. They did have a <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, none of them survived. They were in the fire, weren't they? they were they? Yeah. Sorry yeah. about that. Yeah. Shakespeare's still around, but he's in Bradford at the moment. He's in Bradford. Yes. So Shakespeare was uh, Mackinnon Saunders' uh, uh, puppet? Or? Well, <laughs> we can say now, but it was made by Peter Saunders. Right who was working at Cosgrove Hall at the time, so yeah. wasn't meant to be doing work outside. <coughs> right. And he gets credited as an anagram of his name as Rupert de Sands. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, most of the credits, if you look at the credits, are either um, Jan Overdum, mm. or, or no, it was, um, there were Shakespearean names of people who were working at Cosgrove Hall who yeah. uh, couldn't be seen to be... Uh, <laughs> Working, but yeah, Peter Saunders was Rupert the Sands. So you knew him from your days at Cosby yes, Hall. Yes, yes, yes. Peter had started at Cosby Hall about nineteen seventy-eight or something. Yeah, and um, made the Wind of the Willows puppets, and yeah. then Cosby Hall had lean time, and he went off and set up again in Saunders. Mm. I think he made the uh, going equipped puppet. He too, did, didn't he? Yes, mm. he did. Oh, yeah, yes, he did. Fine puppet. Um, but again, probably under a pseudonym. No doubt. <laughs> pseudonym. Uh, but the puppet could still be animated now. Mm. The latex is probably not in good condition, but they were good puppets. Mm. And but that's where the budget went mm. Um, mm. on a good puppet. Because mm. you know, it wasn't a clay puppet. And the costume took up a lot of the budget as well, which is beautiful. By Nigel Cornford, who made costumes for you over mm-hmm. the years, hasn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, Corpse Bride makes costumes for him. Yes. But he's sadly no longer with us. They're looking at the credits of uh, mm. Next, it's slightly depleted. And <laughs> Stuart Gordon, who did the music, mm. has oh, yeah. left us. Mm. Nigel Cornford, yeah. Roger Reese. Yeah. It, it's like an Agatha Christie. Yes. Thing. <laughs> um, um, if we just kind of step back, can you maybe, David uh, Peter can feel this one, can you just? Paint a picture of what Ardman was like in the days when you were making lipstick. Where were you? How many <coughs> we were in employees. We, were in, we, were had, we had this. Uh, sort of, it was a Victorian garage, basically. Yeah. It was mm. a penta- it was a two thousand square foot shed mm. up in Clifton, mm. which we were renting. We actually, rented it for twenty five years. Took a long lease on it. Mm. Um, we put a concrete floor down, and that was our two thousand square foot studio. Mm. And mezzanine was. And, and we put mm. a mezzanine, and it had kind of trusses you could put mezzanine in there so basically most of it was studio space a little office not much bigger than that office there mm. um, and a bit of space upstairs which is problem making 
I know over the years we rented other spaces around town for mostly commercials, but that was that was home before. We were back to back. Yeah, yeah we were. Back. And we just we, put, were, we just hung like this. the black curtains yeah. and kind of carved yeah. space. If you step back quickly, it, you walked yeah. into I mean, it. Yeah. The, the next film, yeah. Because yeah. I, mean, I, I, I remember I did, was really cramped, because we were probably shooting a commercial at the same time whilst yeah. we were doing it. I had to walk sideways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think, I, I do remember, because we shot, there's a time when we were like, shooting three commercials, simultaneously. Drapes, I can't remember what you were shooting, Pete, but he came back after lunch and the camera had moved about three foot. So mm. I pointed in a completely different direction. <laughs> so who did that? It was really cramped. It was, uh, yes, it was, it was a dynamic, dynamic place, you know, yeah. Yeah, and, and cramped and, and, and super productive as well. Yeah, I had a camera move at the end of the next. So yeah. The camera pulled back and I was literally intruding into yeah. <laughs> your set. Yeah. And a couple of photographs. Could help you. Yeah, but there were thirty-five mil cameras, which yeah, took up a lot of space. Yeah, yeah. And then <coughs> to put them on a camel track took up. It was compact. Wasn't it was compact. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I shot mine January, February, March. I remember that because oh, I've got the storyboards and right. yeah, shooting January. Um, but. We were all a bit staggered, I think. And I yeah, yeah. remember Nick took a bit longer than he was meant to do. Is that, is that yes. right? Another seven years. Yes. yes. <laughs> I didn't say that. Well, I think apart from yes, we didn't have we didn't have that many cameras. These days, digital cameras, you've got yeah. dozens of them, and then a few, big 35 more cameras that were capable of shooting stop frame were quite rare beasts. Yeah. So we didn't have that many. So we had, and I think at the end, we probably, at the end of Weatherall Place, we probably only had maybe, maybe five. Did we have video assist? We did got we got it when because the first we have a black and white camera attached. Yeah, we had yeah, inside yeah, of the camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah basically, there's some yeah, some video taps. But it was black and white. Yes, video assist. Yeah. I think so. mm. and it wasn't a true picture. Mm. Um, oh, those were the days. Yeah, how, how did you come to do that, Barry? Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, these kind chaps gave me a job in 1986 after. I've been on Wind of the Willows for six years and the stories kept coming around a bit. And, like, <laughs> yeah. and I sort of sort of had integrity. The stories come around, I'm leaving. <laughs> and so my first job for Arden was the singing bra. Oh, was it? Uh, well. So yes. I thought, there goes my integrity. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the Ariston campaign, yeah. which was great fun, actually. Yeah. Yes. Except for, one, except for one day on the shoot. Do okay. you remember? No. I remember we we had it's a little technical thing and we had camera motors actually built by Wally Beaver's engineer and they had a curious they were designed to be left on let's put it that way and I think somebody whether it's you me or somebody else tripped over a four-way pulled out a plug plug was put back in the camera ran backwards at 50 frames a second for it. it just wiped out your entire day's work <laughs> I don't remember that I, I remember that because I remember thinking oh shit Gary isn't going to be happy about this <laughs> <laughs> and it was just one of those weird just the way it was just weird technical thing the way the circuitry worked you say oh I'll go I don't care what direction I don't care how that's path. coming back it's yeah. impressed though because <laughs> yeah. yeah. again it was, quite, it was quite a compact set yeah. Yeah. I, what I do remember about the Ariston things was we had stop motion in drawn yeah, yeah. so we were shooting yeah. it. I don't think it was shot against screen. No, she was checking the checkerboard. Again. Yes, it was. Yeah. Because yeah. 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 um, it wasn't digital. Mm. Um, but I remember 
animating saucepans and bras yes. and yes. things. Yeah, knickers. Yeah. yeah. So it's a period of a lot of advertising commissions. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was that, on the back that, of animated conversations. Yes. Jordan's yeah. crunchy things. Yes. Yes. And it only struck me, actually, oddly recently, like a yeah, to Channel Four started. Of course, Channel Four was a commercial television station. Yeah. Suddenly, you had twice the airtime for commercials, mm. and there was this massive sort of cash injection into mm. the commercials market. Mm. Um, and we happened to be there at the right time because mm. commercials came flooding in. They wanted stuff that was different, mm. and it was all new, and they had a different audience. Mm. So we did a, an awful lot of commercial mm. work in in quite a short period of time, which helped build the company. And build quite is, I remember that fax, fax machine at the yeah. time, and yeah. um, it's red hot. <laughs> yes, uh, advertising agencies would send through those scripts and. Would, it came to the point where we just kind of ignored them to the end of the, till the end of the day. But it's like a pile of yeah. things would just come in during the day and go, nah. Yeah. Well, that looks interesting. So that would be their first point of contact with you would be through the facts. I think, I think probably with yeah. the producer to ask if they could send through an yeah. idea. Yeah. 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 So fax the storyboard through. Yeah. You were employee number one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what well, year was that, and what, how did you come to be? Not. I don't know if I was strictly number one. I mean, you'd work with other people, hadn't you? But I was, I was oh, yes, I was the first on staff. Yes, yes, yes. P-A-Y-E, yes. Um, I'd, I'd, um, I'd done quite a lot of animation at college, but kind of yeah. more more in the sort of surreal vein. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and some of them funny as well. In fact, that got art college, you know, do, making a funny film didn't go down too well. You know, like art isn't funny, yeah. so... Yeah. Um, and then I think I think I came in to work for you for a couple of weeks because I was making I was shooting a little film in, in Bristol. Somebody lent me some studio space, so I just thought I'd have a have a go at this little idea I had. And then you came to see the sets, and then you gave me some work. Mm. And I'd kind of run out of money by then. I sort of finished the film and um, went back to. Uh, I can't remember where I went to London or to my parents, um, but anyway, they gave me a call and said, "Oh, do you want to come and do some more work?" I thought, oh, "This is great," you know. Mm. I thought I didn't really think of it as a job because it's so it's great fun. Mm. So I just thought this is something nice to do was for a it, couple of years. Was it early, early Bird? Was it that? I know, early so remember you animated on Early Bird with all the you know records being thrown around. The, oh, the, the yes. DJ one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. You were yeah. shooting the pilot for Hamilton. <clears throat> At that time? When I joined. Well, at, when and I joined, joined. Yes, Which will be at Weatherall Place, yes. Because yes. yes. yeah. in the first series, we did our previous production house okay. place, which is where you joined. Yeah. Production house, where we were doing Babylon, oh, Babylon. Babylon, and then... Where, where was that shot? So we shot we shot part of the part, the, the kind of corridor part. We shot at where... At where Have you seen Babylon? House. No, I've never seen Babylon. Yeah, no, no, we found Weatherall Place. Yeah, it's amazing film. Yeah, no, I have, it, it, that's where the guts all come out. Yes, yeah, that, no, I yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, we shot that for real as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. 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 It's out of a short series yeah. called Sweet Disaster All Around Nuclear Threat. Yeah. And there were four or five films. Oh, yeah. But David Anderson. Yeah, I was just going to say we should mention David, who was next door, in fact. Yeah. 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 He was 
Dave yeah. Anderson yeah. shooting next door. Whoops, he was shooting door. And and dreamless sleep as well. Yeah, which was a sort of the nuclear threat one. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And, yeah. kind of and then door did one something. shot on that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you worked on the sledgehammer video with Yes, yes, altogether, yes. 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 Were you there, Barry? I, I arrived on your last day and you'd been shooting through the night. <laughs> um, blind. You'd been in the, in the shot, in the last shot or something. And who yeah, else was on that? The Quays were on there? The Quays, yes. Yeah. Yeah. How, uh, how did that come? I mean, who, who was. Um... I can give you a full hour documentary. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's a long story. What was the name of the director again? Stephen Johnson. Stephen Johnson. Yeah. Stephen Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. And how were you all individually rec recruited to that project? Well, we got a call from Limelight, which was his the production company that Peter Gable put his videos through. Peter yeah. Gable had seen his work on, on the Talking Heads video, I think, that Stephen Johnson yeah. shot. Wrote to nowhere. Uh, yeah, wrote right. to nowhere, and and they'd got together. Gabriel had actually been following our work, oddly yeah. enough, and, and Johnson knew of the Quays. Yeah. So we got this call, you know, could we do it? Yes, we'd love to do it. Yeah. And, and then there was a very rough storyboard, literally, yeah. quite rough. Yeah. Um, and then, then it, it all came together. I mean, I think it was about three, week, three weeks before we started shooting. Yeah. Um, and then the Quays, I the Quays came down before the shoot, which was not day of the shoot. But anyway, we all piled in on. This Monday, we'd had we'd had we'd had enough time to cast our model makers or model making outfit that we used, Chris Lyons, cast Peter Gabriel's head, mm. and the ice bit and for the clay head. I think, mm. used. Yeah, and we managed to do a few tests, but fundamentally, we started on that Monday. We had a few model makers who were making stuff more up more or less as we went along. Mm. Props were being gathered. Sarah did a lot of work pulling fish and sweets and things. Um, <laughs> and you know that we, doesn't make sense. Buying <laughs> <laughs> <we're> buying <laughs> fish, for the quake for the skin and fruit. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Sticking bits of wire into chicken. Related to Peter Gabriel and everything, Manchester Evening News yes. had the surreal image of a swimming pool mm -hmm. inside. The Robin of Sherwood's set yes, inside a Norman shirt, uh, a Norman shirt, okay. yeah. Yeah. with Donny Osmond yes. watching. Do you yes. remember that? I yes. do remember that. Donny yes. Osmond yes. came to watch for one day <laughs> because he was at Peter Gabriel's studio. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes, that was very, I thought very that, memorable. That was a very strange. That day. was very strange. Very strange. Day. <laughs> yeah. But he was in wetsuit. Yes. With Nick up to Nick up to the bar, stuffed in a chair, with chair with stage weights. Die, yeah. die hypothermia uh, because the water was wasn't easy, chair, yes. but it was in Robert and Sherwood's set. Do you not remember that? Yeah, yeah, well, absolutely. It's <laughs> coming back to me now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I've, I've got a photo there of, some, there's of some footage on there, actually. Danny Osmond quite, watching, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which was, yeah. and he was wearing purple corduroy pants. I don't know why I remember that. <laughs> but yeah. that was a surreal image. Yes, but it was in the church, wasn't it? Yes, the, was old, the, the pro cathedral. Yeah. Very strange indeed. But so that was a similar commercial to Yeah. Yeah, that was completely completely ripped off basically, wasn't it? Which we shot up in Manchester. In Manchester. Bristol, Bristol Robins. Oh yes, it yes. Was, was it the Robin? Yeah, the uh, rugby ground. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. By the time uh, 
So coming back to lip sync. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that thing. Oh, that Bless you. Um, it, it came what like six or seven years after the the first batch of uh, five for Channel Four, something like that. Well, if Creature Comforts was up for eighty, up for eighty nine. They were and transmitted in November '89, yeah. and we had started yeah. the first ones in January. The, the which one? Channel Four ones would have been. Yeah, '83. Yeah, yeah, '83. Probably '83. Thereabouts. Yeah. Thereabouts. So it was, so quite, there was quite a gap. So, yeah. and, then, and we'd migrated from shooting on 16 mil to 35 mil. If Lipsing was kind of uh, commissioned as part of the same package as. The animated conversations, with that gap, at which point did you and Channel 4 come together and say, right now it's time for batch number two? Uh, we, di- uh, we didn't. Uh, I think we just said, oh, blimey, they want more. And, yeah. and, and the, I think as Pete was saying, we kept saying, we must carve some time out yeah. to think about what we're going to do next to Channel 4. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we'll have, we'll have a month. Ooh. A month got down to a week, yeah. the week would get down to a day, and the day get down to three hours down the pub. Yeah. It was quite weird. We were so busy, yeah. and we weren't. We just weren't making difference. Yeah. Like, we've got to take this time out to think. Yeah. So yeah. That, and that's why it drifted. Uh, we didn't yes. mean we didn't mean it to drift as long as that at all. It just did because yeah. you were being offered three course meals four times a day by the ad agency. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the. Uh, it was particular to work on film, wasn't it? If you were shooting a commercial, yeah. it's not in your interest to stop and like come back to the next day because yeah. something will have moved, or, yeah. and you wouldn't be aware until you got to the end of the shot. So we shoot through. So sometimes we're there all night, or, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or quite often, really. Quite often. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think perhaps I was to, yeah. I, I had a definite schedule. Yeah. And you were laughing at me. Yes. Yeah. yeah, we did. I well, can't yeah. look at him with his schedule. We yeah. <laughs> look at him with 20 seconds a day. <laughs> I, I think I shot it in five and a half weeks. You were, you, yeah. you were admirably, well, only admirably fast and efficient. Yeah, really, yeah. yeah, that's my background. Yeah. Yeah. That's fast, that's well, about 12 seconds a day. Yeah, and yeah. I still do that. Yeah. But, um, I made on ones or twos? Ones. Yes. But there's been a lot of stuff about Wind in the Willows in the papers recently. And I was trying to work out, we didn't have video assist, and that was 16 mil. Yeah. Our schedule was 23 seconds a day. Mm-hmm. So that's good training. Very, very character building. Yeah. Well, you didn't move it in the second. It was more, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 25 seconds a day or more. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But that had sculpting and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So you had a commission for five films, yeah. I don't think. Um, so. Were the films, were the five films kind of developed independently, and then you tried to sing them together with the theme, or no, did think, you sit down together and say? I think we had the conversation about the theme yeah, first, first. You know, and then and then um, abandoned it because it was <laughs> because yeah. yeah, it wasn't. You know, we I think we had briefly an image that they, that they would be tightly grouped in some way, yeah. yeah, and then that clearly wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Uh, so then thereafter, I think we went on our own pretty well. Yes. Yeah. But they had to all go out in the same week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ten to yeah. ten, a quarter to ten. But I think the the development thereafter we, we was yeah. pretty well each was on our own. Yeah. I think yeah. pretty, pretty well. Mm. You know, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Which was fun. Channel yeah. Four was quite hands off. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Colin, Colin, you must have shot yours pretty well to continuously for a number of weeks. Yes, I I, I think I, I I think my shoot was really quick mm. and um, I wish it'd taken a bit more time now. But, um, <laughs> but the the uh, yeah. 
I, I think I was trying to combine the idea of that you know, surrealism and comedy, but I kind of wanted um, I wanted it to look kind of rough, kind of, kind of boiling, but I, it got, kind, of, kind of sort of landed in the middle. It wasn't nicely animated and it wasn't <laughs> boiling. It was just boiling sometimes and wobbling about sometimes. I, I no, that's not quite true. Well, it's yeah,、yeah. it's got this kind of like punky light and archaic feel to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that comes through. Well, it was. I mean, it's highly technical. We really want to bring the textures out of all the weird shapes. Yeah, and the lighting, the
leopard on the, yeah. on the thing. He, 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 that was the first time I'd seen like an animation character thinking. Because yet I think sort of subconsciously mm. Nick was doing the performance himself, mm. like mm. as he was going along in a mirror. Mm. And the the leopard, when it's thinking, it looks up. You know, it looks up left and right as if it's yes. trying to recall something. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I've I've learned a lot about that since then because it's like a mm. universal. We yeah. we move our, we all move our eyes to to find the same things in our brain. You know, yeah. Yeah. and um, but at the time I think Nick was doing it kind of um, just subconsciously, yeah. but he got yeah. it absolutely right. And that's so that's I think that was the magic thing about seeing the animals talking is that they really looked like they were they were thinking it through mm. and what they were about to say and things and it was but that's what works quite well about lips that sync as a series is that you have these films like for example next is acting through the body ident also you're really kind of uh, pushing the kind of metamorphosis of clay like he turns into yeah. a bin at some point i think yeah, and back, mm. and yeah. contrasted with these other films like uh, your ones and then nicks which are about kind of minimalism it's about minute gestures mm. and so on mm. That's where the expression comes through. Did we do any reshoots? I think there was something on Wall Street that, that, that just that didn't work, as I recall. There was some. I seem to remember him running down the corridor, hanging on wires, and I, and I think we had to do a reshoot of that. I believe there. Were, it's funny on, on Wall Street there was an attempt to do some things that didn't work. Actually, um, I had some notion, a kind, a kind of a. A sort of notion you get in 2D that the scenes would fit together sort of cleverly and seamlessly and there was one scene where he was meant to be st he was standing in front of a, a mesh and uh, which was front lit and then the, there was a scene behind and we're going to, like in the theatre we're, we're going to raise the lights behind and drop the light on the mesh and the camera would go through the mesh and see the scene behind uh, that, that didn't work <laughs> that didn't work. And so what? So in the film, there's the shot, there's randomly actually, a shot of him standing in front of, of, of a fine mesh, which is not, which is not the, the normal background he's in front of. But for example, also in the same vein, at the end, there's a scene where his wife and her mother are frantically knitting socks for the, the war effort. Uh, then he comes in and tells them that there's a, a blitz and he grabs the dog and exits and the camera um, pans off them and up into blackness to land on him as an old man talking and that was all done as one piece but now it's ludicrous because it would be so easy to have done that <coughs> as an optical effect or some sort of effect but, but we dutifully worked out this quite fiddly camera move from one lighting rear across blackness to another. Yeah, because I think I was doing the same with the black velvet. Mm. Shakespeare was going out frame left and overlapping yeah. in frame right. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So I think that black velvet is a joy. Black velvet. <laughs> I seem yes. to remember that that scene with the, with the camera panning uh, off him. That Nick was helping me. I think we were both animating together. I think it was the same thing. And it was like really late at night. It's ridiculously late at night. And as Goddy was saying, you never wanted to cut because something would always go wrong. Yeah. So we were going through till about three in the morning, absolutely exhausted. And I, rem I remember lying down on a piece of handy um, polystyrene mm. as a bed, just for about five minutes while, while Nick was doing his bit of animation. And, you know, he got, that was my 
That's my rest time between frames. <laughs> was there any post-production? Any almost, almost. I think very we very added very sequence, uh, literally oh, yeah. goal sequence, and I think we. Peter Hall had a light in his cigar. Oh, did, we yeah. just but did we do that lit. as an optical? Yes, Pepper's Ghost. Pepper's Ghost thing, which yeah. I love these basic things. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It wasn't CG. The yeah. glitter falling was done. God, yes. Um, <coughs> Pepper's Ghost with an angled piece of glass. Mm. And I had sequins and glitter on black velvet, and mm. I was animating the black mm. velvet. Did you know oh, that was? We know, tele- how, you know how teleprompter works. Yeah, yeah. Basically, it's that technique. Yeah. Okay. So you have off camera, you have, you have a piece of glass in front of yeah. the camera at 45 degrees. Yeah. It's reflecting the yeah, percentage. Yeah. So you can have stuff happening over here, but you're looking straight through it like, yeah. a, like yeah. a teleprompter thing. Yeah. We used it on My Baby Just Cares for Me for yeah. the, um, the smoke. And in fact, the light shaft that was painted, mm. that was just chalk on a blackboard. Yeah. And it's funny because the net thing, thinking about that now, I thought, yes, what happened was, the problem was, you had to pull focus, yeah. had to pull focus to the net, yeah. and of course that revealed it. Yeah. Oddly yeah. enough, I used I was using nets on Madka's Damn in the Beer yeah. film, and I realised, oh, actually there's a way around this, which is just swing the net during the exposure, yeah. um, which we did, just yeah. better made it like a pendulum. Yeah. I, I, had we done that there, we well, would have saved the shot. Saved the shot. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a lovely technique. Peter and I were talking earlier about hanging puppets on what on invisible. Yeah. Yeah. If you just knock it Absolutely. just before yeah. the frame, yeah. it disappears. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and it helps it because the puppet is blown. It's one of on one of our very early commercials, which was for the Enterprise sixty four, mm. which Golly works on. <laughs> but basically, the early days of, of home computers, <laughs> and yeah. this outfit made this. It's trying to make all the other ones seem obsolete. So all the other ones represented as skeletons. And there's a scene in there where. Computer, which I think was meant to be a hamstring or something, Sinclair. That's because that literally flies in like a, like a flat bunch of bones, and that's what we did. It was on tungsten, yeah. and it was shot on a series of shot on series of shots and or framed. You just went, caught it there, caught it there, yeah. caught it, caught it there, and because yeah. it's moving in frame, you don't see the strings at all. Yeah, <laughs> and one piece of absolute irony: Scotch videotape. Not fade away. Not fade away. Scotch videotapes. Who remembers? <laughs> what, what was that computer's name again? Enterprise. When for the Enterprise sixty four. Came the Enterprise one two eight. By the time the ad went out, and by the time, by the time the ad, it went never went out. out. It never went out. That's right. It never went out. It started as one week sixty four. By the time we got okay. to finish the ad, it became the one two eight. By the time the ad was going to go on air, the outfit gone bankrupt. <laughs> But the agency played it like the, in the Channel Islands in order that it hit the criteria to get into you know, oh, the advertising right. awards. So they played it on air. I had to play on air. So <laughs> shit, we just have to get it. Nobody will know. <laughs> they can't get it. But Obviously. if you put it on air once, right, it's in for the d <laughs> and well, I spent a yeah. um, vast amount of time on a toilet duck commercial yeah. that was based on screenplay. Right. And again, all done in one take, all hugely complicated in-camera effects. Yeah. And um, they tested the product, and it smelled like <laughs> <shit>. <laughs> and They had to withdraw the commercial. <laughs> <laughs> but going back to this late night stuff, one of the reasons was you're shooting on film, yeah. And you know you'd send your film off to Technicolor, mm. and you wanted to make sure that you you didn't want to have the shot being in separate bars. So shot 
They shot on separate days because mm. the bath, the chemicals would be very slightly different. different. So the yeah. neg would be developed in a very slightly different way. But visibly so. But just about. Just about. You, very, yeah. very hard yeah. to grade that out. So you didn't want these little bumps. Yeah. Um, so that was why you wanted to always want to finish the shot. Yeah. And then we have a run, even if it's two o'clock in the morning, you take it up the lambs and then still put it in, you know, four or five o'clock in the morning. So yeah. And you get it back at ten. Technicolor really used to take the piss because yeah. once I did this shot for a commercial, it was literally like twenty-five frames or so and it's like a piece of film at that length put it on a bit of lead on either end yeah. and put it in the in the can and taped up it's given to a runner that would drive down to Technicolor wait until it got processed bring it back in the morning and that's Technicolor would send it in the biggest tin they could find so you could think that because it's little cool with a few frames around it and this whopping <laughs> drape on this is how often did we send brushes so it wasn't on uh, well Nick didn't want to send rushes until he'd shot like a whole week's worth. And I'm thinking, oh my god, I hope it's going to be okay, because yeah. he just wanted to shoot on. Probably, probably most days, or, or at least when you've got a shot completed, you certainly yeah. want to put shots in the whole shot. second shot, so yeah. I don't think we would have. No, you would have just held on to yeah. it a few, yeah. a few yeah. days for only. And yeah. Nick simply through self confidence kind of. <laughs> but you know, the other thing was yeah. the, the cameras were the cameras were effectively modified live action cameras. Yeah, they weren't. Yeah. some of them were of dubious parentage, <laughs> and some of them leaked like sieves. Yeah. In fact, if you watch if you watch Grand Day Out, mm. you'll see a certain even though we've restored it, there's still a bit of flicker mm. that you'll see on some of those shots because of the way that camera worked. Um, and I, I think it was on Babylon, wasn't it? I remember on that other yeah. biscuit tin. Yeah. And it had been adapted to take magazines, it had internal magazines, adapted to external magazines. Whoever was we were shooting for a day, I opened the camera door, yeah. and the entire day's film just fell yeah. on the floor. Yeah. yeah, it just hadn't been taken up, and just hadn't noticed it hadn't been taken up. Yeah. There's no way of knowing. So, so it's it was quite a fraught process. Yeah, it was also I, to do a close up. You had the camera right yeah. there, and. Mm. You couldn't get to the puppet. You yeah. can't get to the puppet. <laughs> yeah. You can't see it. You, yeah. And you know, you've got backache, and, mm. and you knocked the camera. I yeah. tried not to. But it was At what point was Adman, did Adman make the move to digital? What was the first project? Well, we went through video. It was mostly to do on TV work. Oddly enough, mostly through short sheep actually. Yeah. Um, well. I think the first series was shot on straight video, wasn't it? Might have been high def video. Um, you went through almost everything on the. Yes, so. I remember we did some live action shots. Yeah. <laughs> Close up of the puppet, we just turned the head a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that was, uh, they were the. HD uh, video? Yeah. yeah yes. And on commercials, we had. Actually, we, we shot pretty well all the commercials on 35 mil. And then on some of the more. Yeah, some of the TV stuff. I can't remember. We, we, we were working on Intune commercials, mm. actually, on digital SLRs. Mm. And the film that we made transition on was The Matter of Loaf and Death. Right. And that's where we said, right, here's a long form. We've cracked this digital pipeline. Yeah. Um, and I remember having this conversation with David Depp and actually Tom Barnes, saying, I think we're probably ready to shoot this on digital stills. Yeah. We've cracked it all down here. 2004? Whenever, yeah. Three. And we, we knew we kind of, and, 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 oh, I don't know about that, you yeah. know, crown jewels. And I said, okay, fine. I'll tell you what, we'll keep working on this digital pipeline. 
And if we haven't cracked it like three weeks before we're due to shoot, we'll get the, the Mitchell 35 mm cameras out. Yeah. We'll shoot it on film. And what was really interesting, we obviously we cracked the pipeline as well, and you probably would too, um, Canon cameras. Mm. And Nick loved it, because what you see is what you got. As a director, mm. is what you're going to get, mm. as opposed to films. Now, mm. say, when we moved to colour video, so it's pretty shitty. Mm. And it's coming off the viewfinder, so it's massively degraded. You couldn't really, and very often we'd have working lights. Mm. So you, have, like, you put a lot of light on the set, so you can mm. actually see what you were doing to take the frame. Yeah, that works. Switch on and, well. and, and put the beauty lights on. Yeah. Um, beauty because, lights, I'd forgotten that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. beauty lights and working yeah. lights. And, and, am I right? <coughs> it may not have been in the time of lipsing, but there were some 35mm cameras. That to look through, you could slide the camera. Yeah, the record, yeah, yeah. It's never very, no, never very pleasant. No. No. That wasn't on this. <laughs> no. no, it wasn't on this. Yeah. We had, we did have an NC, but you try, you try not to I hate between. Them. between. So, <laughs> what was interesting was that a Mitchell is like a huge grip. It is. It's about forty pounds and massive. And a Canon SLR is quite small. Yeah. And the cameramen were usually quite chunky as well. Yeah. So. And, and within <laughs> about three days, the camera crew were saying, this is great, because the camera moving times, and it's so easy comparison. Yeah. So by the end of the first week, pretty well everybody was convinced this is the way to go. Because mm -hmm. they say in terms of, because on film, you basically couldn't, you didn't, you didn't approve a shot, you didn't change anything mm -hmm. until the film would come back from the labs the next day. Mm -hmm. And you then might have wanted to get a reprint because it wasn't quite the way you wanted it. Mm. So in fact, you you were sort of, things just got frozen for mm. sometimes a day or two. Mm. It's funny because we still got these motion control rigs uh, at uh, the film studio. Yeah. The size of an elephant, these things, because yeah. yeah. they were designed to sort of take a huge camera, but you see these yeah. dinky little SLRs. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. This yeah. looks ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. digital has changed everything. It's, yeah. um, they too, you can be much more kinetic with animation because yeah. they can jump and you can remove the rigs easily, yeah, yeah. but also I guess it saves time in that it, you feel a shot's not going well, you can see it's not going yeah. well, yeah. 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 and stop, stop yeah. Yeah. and yeah. start again yeah. without yeah. having to get to the end. Because <coughs> you know. yeah. there's a thing that happened, there's a little temporary Of course it never goes wrong. The thing that happened on Chicken Run, <laughs> Chicken Run shot me by Yeah. and the animators were used to, oh I don't like that frame, they put a little card in saying cut back to your frames. Yes. Yeah. So you'd have, you know, six, eight, ten frames of decent frames, then you'd have cards saying, cut back two frames, those yeah. two frames again, oh, the next two weren't great either. And of course, when it came to the neck cut, yeah. it was literally yeah. impossible. The neck cutter said, there's no way we can neck cut this. Yeah. So that was, I think, the first film in the UK where the entire film with the digital intermediate process. We scanned right. the whole neck and, cut it. and then cut it mm. digitally. Because mm -hmm. it, and then they cut it, so we just can't. It, a, if we can cut it, it does fall apart in the labs anyway. Because mm -hmm. like every other frame had a splice on it. Yeah. Going back to lipstick for, for a moment, I was just thinking that. It's um, That with the like on probation, I was yeah. I was slightly influenced by uh, the overcoat, the um, yes. Uri Nordstein film that never got finished. So, so this is conversation pieces we're going This to Sorry, this is, this is lip sync. This is on This is on probation. Going equipped. Sorry. Take two. <laughs> on, <laughs> on going equipped, I was influenced by the uh, Yuri Nordstein film. The Overcoat. The Overcoat, which is... Which um, was never finished. Never finished. But, but it's in the sense that it was, it was it's an incredibly beautiful thing and 
and what happens? You know, it's just, it's just observation of yeah. this guy, this little guy living out his his small existence, yeah. and uh, without any gags or anything like that. And so yeah. that was kind of an influence. And um, where had you seen it? At Annecy, I guess probably at film film festival. It was shown like a, some of the It was shown this work in progress yeah. for years actually, because he yeah. you know, still is, I guess, work in progress. Yeah. Two, two frames every year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, the, but that was that, that was like the encouragement to try and do something that yeah. was kind of about observation, just about observation, and not about yeah games, mm-hmm. or just to try to you know. Great. This brings me on to a question which I, I was thinking of is um, you, I read in your book that you two went to Zagreb mm-hmm. uh, with yeah. one of your early films and were suddenly exposed to this whole new world yeah. of non-children oriented yeah. animation yeah. Um, did anything specifically influence you from what you saw at that festival oh, and lots. subsequent festivals I mean, did well, it change the way you approached your filmmaking I, th- I think yeah. it, I think it it did because you saw I mean, some of the stuff was funny there was a lot of East European films I remember seeing oddly enough what I thought was a straight East European film yeah it was made by the Quaid brothers which was Nocturnal Artificialia oh yeah, yeah. there and I remember watching it thinking BFI blimey it's coming out of London yeah. mm. uh, and how extraordinary that was mm. um, that's the I have no idea on the trip, trend, yeah. I have yeah. no idea what it's about still don't but it actually no. looked yeah. looked gorgeous yeah and that that you know they were they were I remember the Italian films were mostly sexual innuendo sort of stuff or <laughs> men's fantasies, um, and you could see you could see the sort of na- the national trends and stuff which we never ever saw. Yeah, you just never saw the stuff in the UK at all. And but by the time it came to making lip sync, obviously Channel Four had been broadcasting stuff like this yeah, for a while. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. had that further influenced your filmmaking? The second, yeah, they probably had. It probably had. You probably had actually. We got better for sure. Yeah. Uh, their yeah, their diverse range of. You've seen, you've seen more, you know, more artists' voices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 See, yeah. yeah. I think festivals really did that for me. Yeah. yeah. To a couple of festivals, you just see things that you've never seen before. Yeah. Which then, which ones, for example, which festivals? Um, Annecy, uh, Annecy, and I went to Stuttgart. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I, yeah, together. Yeah. I went to one before I actually joined you, but I can't remember where it was. Now. You and I went to Hiroshima. Oh, not Hiroshima. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yes, in, in, in the eighties. Yeah. Well, no. I can smell no. the whiskey. Hiroshima. <laughs> <laughs> right, I, I take a bottle of whiskey as a gift to a Japanese person. I said they'd like to have that whiskey, but it broke in my bag oh, and it no. soaked into all my clothes. <laughs> oh, sorry. It smelled like, it smelled like a. I knew you'd have to have just biscuits or something. I still do. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the sorry w- w- was this kind of um, initiative by Channel Four to make adult animation. Uh, w- was that on your mind when you were conceiving Lip Sync? Was it a kind of self-conscious attempt to create something for adults, or were you just no. making what you wanted to? Which both, to have both at the same now? time, if you like. You know, yeah. we, we were doing it. we were absolutely doing what we wanted to. Do. You know, yeah. we were, but but now with with absolute license yeah. to make mm-hmm. a film for for. A, just for an adult audience, or yeah, yeah or mm-hmm. yes, a general audience, an adult yeah. audience. Um, but that does go back to down, down and out. That's, you know, yeah. that's when we first picked up the idea. You know, still, still to this day, I expect you could, people on the streets of Bristol who would say, "Of course, animation is for kids." You know, mm-hmm. that's that's mm-hmm. that was then the, the the common opinion that still is today. I think. Yeah. Um, so, but we but we never felt that way. I don't think. Not, yeah. 
Yeah, never actually. Even I mean, Wolf, we never no, made. We right. never made for kids, kids did we? We just did what, did what we wanted for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, the, I just thought of another film that's been for to me. Sorry, the, yeah. the um, um, possibilities of dialogue. Oh, uh, yes, and that's got. That's like the conversation, yeah, so yeah, there's yes. quite a lot of uh, I wrote from Actually, and yeah. his work was very influential at the time, I think, with us yeah. as well, because again, because you've never seen it, you've never seen it before. And funny enough, when, yeah. I was, when yeah. I was at college, uh, yeah. Andy Walker, Andy Walker yeah. came down mm. with uh, Down and Out, and yeah. I, that, that blew my mind as well because yeah. I was doing animation, I had no idea you could do something like yeah. a drama like that. Yeah. It, it's great. Yeah. Was Channel 4 bu buying up films like this uh, and screening them as well as its own commissions? Like, no, uh, was it showing Frank Meyer, for example? Formations. formations. Yeah, formations. Yeah. A bit later formations. And yeah. Keith Griffiths. Yes, I think, I think, I don't think they were buying, they were commissioning rather than buying ready-made films. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think, did they ever put out a programme of like European films? I don't think so. Yeah. But they were commissioned stuff and I think yeah. Keith Griffiths must have got a commission mm. with Frank yeah, to do the Shrek Meyer stuff. Mm. In the same way that film four, you know, the whole idea of live action drama yeah. feature films, that's in the same model mm. applied, that they would commission the stuff. Uh, Keith Griffith, they produced Alice for Channel yeah. 4, yeah. Is that right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. You were saying that they were quite hands off, the commissioners, but mm -hmm. what was your sense when talking to them? Were, were they animation watchers? Like, were they, did they go to Paul festivals? It wasn't in particular. Did Wendy yes. Claire Kitson come in? Was she She came, he, Paul, yeah, Paul left to do whatever he went to do. She set up his own production company to do more documentaries. Yeah. And then Claire, I don't really know Claire's, Claire is a, a Russian fan, she you know, speaks Russian, yeah. and obviously I'm interested in East European art and drama. I don't really know what her background was yeah. before that. But no. the interesting thing, I reread Jerry Isaacs, book Storm Over 4 which is his biography about the early days of Channel 4 it's an yeah. interesting read yeah. because he had he uh, Claire I think was his second generation but he hand selected people who actually almost purposely hadn't worked in television yeah. to do stuff that was going to be very very different wasn't yeah. going to follow the conventional line so I think Claire had been at the BFA that was her yeah that's yeah. the BFA that's right yes, yes. Mm. she was good though she yeah. was quite hands on yeah so she was quite she was passionate about it which was great yeah yeah, yeah. So you were she, delivering to her by the end of the thing. She would like look at yeah. She would look at storyboards and yeah. say yeah. yes, no, and, mm. and see you in nine weeks. Mm. Yes, yes. Mm. Yeah. Do you remember any concrete suggestions that anyone at Channel Four made? Or I'm curious about that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't know where the tone. I, <laughs> I made a film called Achilles. Yeah. And Claire said, "You can show absolutely anything, but you can't show an erection." Oh really? Or mm -hmm. words that you can't have an erection. Or something. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, that was. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. she was encouraging me to be liberal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, to, mm. to do with my equivalent mm. saying two things that hadn't been done mm. in animation yeah. before. Yeah, yeah. And the Achilles thing came about because I'd been to Annecy and watched a program of erotic animation. Mm. Mm. Which was anything but yes. animation. Mm. It was all drawn, yeah. and it was all whoops, I mean, yeah. and and mm. yes, wasn't erotic. Yeah, but it was dealing with sex, and I thought, I wonder if I could make an erotic thing with puppets, or whether people would laugh. Yeah, I don't know. But, um, but that was, you know, reflective of Channel 4's thinking yeah. to yeah. do things that hadn't been done before. Yeah. Um, 
It did feel like exciting yeah. time, didn't it? Yeah. It did feel controversy yeah. and Good. stuff. Yeah. And A for Autism came out, which yeah. was, was a remarkable yeah. film. Yeah. Um, so it, it was widening. And yeah. um, uh, Erica Russell's Fuse of Song, which mm. was beautiful. <coughs> and Joanna Quinn. Um, but at the same time, the BBC were doing the animated Shakespeare's and um, mm. the animated operas, so mm. there was suddenly a, a widening of things. Yeah, yeah, because the BBC basically wanted to jump on the bandwagon, so yes, they set yeah. an, their animation unit here in Bristol. Yeah, and in fact, Grand Day Out first went out on Channel Four. Yeah, um, and but we did a deal for on on uh, the wrong trousers of the BBC. And, that, right. and then and Colin Rose, who was running the department, it was literally a department of like two two people. Yeah, Helen and Colin. Helen and Colin, yeah. yeah. And then suddenly you had this sort of, not quite a rivalry, but you had both channels, and Beeps yeah. went down more family-based stuff, and Channel 4 was still doing the art house stuff. Yeah. I don't think Claire was very happy with us at the time. No, she wasn't. No. No, no, no. Well, with what it's going to be, yeah. 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 But actually, <laughs> I, they, they didn't have an overseas sales arm. That was one of the key yeah. things the BBC did. Yeah. And we, what we, didn't, we didn't have to sell the films overseas, so that's kind mm. of one of the reasons. Yeah. And it fitted the BBC's remit more, I think. Yeah. But let's turn the tables. Mm. Yeah. What, what's your opinion on these films? I, I, I absolutely love them. I mean, I, I saw them at school when I was about. Oh, God. Um, primary school. Yeah. I saw them when I was like seven or eight, yeah. On VHS. I had no idea what, what was going on in some of them. Like, I remember watching Idents and being like, what is this? <laughs> I <laughs> most were still dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes more sense when you get older and you start to realise what the grind is, you know. That's, <laughs> that's how I feel about it. But I remember also watching Next and um, similarly not knowing any Shakespeare at the time, so not understanding it on that level, but still getting the energy from it. Um, and realizing that it was quite different from uh, a lot of the other animation we were shown. Um, the Wombles, for example. <laughs> yeah, what, what were we shown? I mean, Magic Roundabout. We, yeah, we watched we watched these weird. Like, uh, we watched like a French animated series called uh, My Dear Little Planet, which had been dubbed into English, but it was very talking down to children, which mm-hmm. French children's programming sometimes does. Um, and other things, and, and then we, and then some rogue teacher must have shown us the lip sync films. Yeah, <laughs> that age. for that rogue teacher. <laughs> yeah, but it was um, it was fantastic, and I, th- I think I think they stand up pretty well. Uh, it's it's interesting to compare them to to conversation pieces, and this switch that you well, especially in the box box ones, you mm. decided to make from I guess mm. candid mm. to Inter- interviewing yeah. kind of. Yeah. Mm. And I can see why you did it. I mean, I, I guess you, you kind of touched on this already, but it was m- it was more of a practical thing than a kind of it was, it, it, creative it, it decision. Was, to it was really. I mean, yeah. if, if we if we'd had if we had had success with the um, eavesdropping on on conversations, then we would have continued. But really, yeah. it was it just you know we weren't we're not documentary makers, yeah. and so uh, we didn't particularly have the, the art of getting to where the action was, and we, we, we'd have ideas and we'd send out recordist out yeah. and come back with just nothing that had any, any drama at all. So it was, it was kind of um, it, it didn't you know when we did those 
five the conversation mm. pieces the last one was done at a radio station mm. somewhat in despair and mm. i think of those five conversations mm. i think probably two of the you know two of them were immediate yes we'll go with those and, and mm. the, uh, the other three were kind of thrown in the bin and then oh shit, uh, we'll have to get them out that's, <coughs> well, that's but, the best know, we can yeah, do i mean part of me days you know one set in the desert island yes that sat on the shelf and we thought let's just review what we've got mm. i think we gave ourselves like a uh, uh, we think we'll, we'll, we'll do try and do like 15 locations yeah. we'll try and get five mm. films out of 15 locations yeah. mm. and we've done five or six locations and mm. we thought well let's just listen to what we've got mm. and we completely dismiss these old boys mm. reminiscing mm. and then we thought well, let's tip the whole thing on the head i mean it, it's it's a curious film but yeah. it's all about actually they're just going around and around in circles all yeah, yeah. so we flipped it on its head that actually we can do this because what you were looking at what we were lucky enough with with down and out yeah. was again we recorded probably three or four hours of material with yeah. celebration on the hostel and in the middle of it was this beautiful little five minute conversation what you hear yeah. is pretty well uncut yeah <coughs> and that's one of the rare times where yeah. actually had something which was you know whatever it was with a bit of a story a shape there's a shape to it Mm. and a resolution mm. and a tension mm. and that's I mean you know, even when we're recording the Creature Comfort stuff for the series you know hundreds of hours even <laughs> when you're interviewing yeah you got I mean there were mountains of old tapes out there which never got used I mean the ratio was massive yeah. wasn't it that's, that's so an interesting really, archive yeah. about what people talk to people's opinions yeah. were in 1918 those films are so influential yeah so yeah. many people them and, uh, yeah. Yes, without understanding exactly what you did. Yeah, yeah. They just said, "Oh, we'll just record a conversation." Yes, yeah, so I mean, if you go to a student first yes. you know, yeah. degree show now, the chances are there'll be a film that's yeah. used yeah. used the real soundtrack yeah. somewhere. Are there any films in that genre in that, of that ilk that you think are very good that you've seen recently? Sure, I'm sure there are, but there you are. They're all rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I, I, think I, I don't know where we saw the Hubley. So we did this thing in. The Yes. Oh, the children, their children talking. Yeah. 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 Yes, it wasn't. Yes, it wasn't our idea in the first place. No, uh, yeah. it's important to say we we just borrowed it. You know, we, we yeah. picked it up. Yeah, but I think you know Nick's genius of putting it into animals mm. and the animal being mm. adding another layer being yeah. so appropriate. Yeah, it was so clever. Mm. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was a brilliant, a brilliant and, idea. And also, you know, mine is full of sudden fury, signifying nothing. Nick's just so subtle. Yeah, so Yeah, yeah. I think there's one character walks. The hippo walks one step. Uh, yes, yeah, so yeah. 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 It's the terrapin on the wheel, I think. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 that's all. Because yeah. 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 um, we hate walking. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't. Um, did you look at photos? Because you, you didn't meet the subjects. So no, we never did. Actually. Did you look? Did you know what they looked like? No. In fact, there's been so a bit of a story I've because I had to get. Yes. I had to get their budgets to clear. Yeah. And it was for um, the sales pitch one, the door yeah, yes. salesman one. I'd, yeah. And I'd done a bit of door to door selling, and I'd yeah. actually, you got a moderately good hit rate because you're meeting somebody new every five or six minutes. Yeah, yeah. So if you do a couple of hours, we probably yeah. will get something. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, we'd chosen that sequence. I thought, right, we've got the address and the, the recordist. Mm. Uh, I'll tootle off and find them. And I went mm. off to the house, and I said, Where these And the garage door was open fat sort of late middle aged fellow there mm. uh, and I asked him if he knew where Mr such and such was mm. and this very wizened dry voice of the old boy we'd made almost on his 
last legs mm. came out of this quite bold, strong body. And I thought, I, did, I must have done a complete double take. It can't be you, you know. <laughs> and I thought, because like, we had portrayed him in a completely different way. Yeah, yeah. And it was him. Yeah. And I, I would never have imagined from the track that this is what he looked mm. like. Did, did they see the films, do you know? Uh, well, Bill, did you show Perry, them Bill Perry certainly did. Yes, he did. He was quite a fan. Yes. Uh, Is that may, because he asked or because... Well, he came, came, to, he came to a, uh, some sort of screening, some yeah. premiere at Watershed. Right. Yes. With his daughter. With his daughter. In fact, and then we stayed in touch with his daughter yeah. ever yeah. since. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing how those... Because I've heard, them so, heard those tracks so many times. It's... Mm. it's um, the, they get so ingrained that I still like when I hear anyone mention Marlborough. I yeah. go, yeah. "I got no, Marlborough." Marlborough. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't. can't weird, do it. isn't it? Well, it's well, weird. The line that gets me is better planning, Nigel. Better <laughs> planning. Where's <laughs> the planning? Yeah, we still use that at home. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I saw because I was looking for these films on YouTube uh, before coming here, and uh, is it on probation where he's talking about seeing his brother? Yeah. 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 There, that's been uploaded to YouTube ostensibly by the person. Oh, really? Yeah, who, uh, wrote, who wrote a little commentary underneath, being like, "This was me." Oh, how interesting! Oh, how interesting! I remember well the day yeah. when these, yeah. these guys yeah. came in with, <laughs> with microphones. That's good. That's oh, got. That's wow. got. A, that's nice. Yeah, that's good. That's yeah. got a moment when the, another one that lives in the family law, where some bloke in the background has no line at all, and sometimes he says, "I, I've got an idea." That's and everyone ever, ever just ignores him totally. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've got an idea. We were talking about reshoots, or I was talking about reshoots. Um, what I love about stop motion is that it does live. You know, you have to let the puppet live. Mm. And there's always a shot in next that always makes me get better. But it's right. Um, when he's dressed in as an eagle, he gets his wing caught in the revolving oh, really? sunburst, and the wing just bends down and flicks. Oh, really? I know. Um, could have happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I didn't see it until it was too late. I see. And that clock, this is a cheap bit of trivia here, that sunburst thing was found in the skip outside Robert's <laughs> yeah. the day I was filming it. And I thought, <laughs> I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a 1950s clock. Uh, Peter Hawley, RSC founder, makes an appearance in the film. Yes. Uh, has he seen? Do you know if he's Well, I asked, I do believe we asked him to um, do the voice. Oh, yeah. And I think he'd just been made a sir that week or something. Yeah, right. and he said, I've been a sir. I'm too busy now. <laughs> Far too important. <laughs> yes. He, um, but he, he did write a very lovely letter. Yeah. And he recognised all the plays and things. Oh, great. And the re reason it's Peter Hall. Yeah. And I thank my mum for this. Um, is I first saw Peter Hall's Shakespeare production. Yeah. My mum took me and it was so clear and so exciting. And Peter Hall's production were that. Yeah. So it's sort of a nod. A tribute. Uh, thank you. And also, he was a film director. He didn't make great films. He made a film called Aikenfield. Oh, yeah. Which I was in. Oh, right. I was an extra in his uh -huh. film. So he's an extra in my okay. first film. <laughs> yeah. Weren't you snogging a girl or something? Did you yes. say in Aikenfield? <laughs> yes, I was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so. <laughs> so, oh, those days. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got it on DVDs and I can sort of see my shoulder and it's, it's shot on Super 8 or 16 yeah. or something. It's a very murky film yeah. about life in Suffolk village. And Suffolk was quite popular then for filming. Do you know the film Witchfinder General? Never seen it, but... Yeah. Vincent Price, yeah. who was a great love of my life. Um, they came to our school to ask for soldiers. Mm. 
desperately wanted to be in the film Finn Surprise, but I was too young. Mm. I could have been in Witchfinder General. Mm. But I know that's where I You could have lied about your age like they did in the first one. <laughs> <Yeah, that's right. laughs> oh, I'm 16. Yeah, yeah, nice um, but Vincent Price, who of course had made Theatre of Blood, mm. which is one of my favourite films, which mm. is so crammed with Shakespeare references. Is it wrong to be obsessed with Shakespeare still? <laughs> I'm still obsessed with him. Oh, yeah, that's wonderful. So is the, so is the country, I mean. <laughs> well, there must be a reason. Yeah. yeah. Must be a reason. The, tell me about the music in your film, Barry, it's because you, your film and you've got your film are the two which uh, have music out of all of these. The others don't. Did you do your music first? I wouldn't call it music. <laughs> Well, it's kind of jangling strings, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was, that, that was, it's nice to work with the music. Oh, yes, friend yes, of mine. Because uh, we plotted the music first. Yeah. And here we go. It was very mathematical. Uh, worked with Stuart Gordon, and we came up with 35 phrases, mm. variations of the same phrase, mm. and the, it was an eight beat phrase mm. with a strong beat on the seventh bar, like a da-da mm. presentation. And so when I did the storyboard, I knew I had seven gestures mm. to tell mm. Romeo and Juliet or whatever. Mm. So it was worked out mathematically and we had yeah. a rough soundtrack. I can't remember if it was on the piano or something. And then we embroidered it yeah. afterwards. Yeah. When he, when he saw the thing. But people still love the music. Yeah. Oh, was, God, that was such an earworm. But I just yes, remember course, not yeah. being able to not hear it. It was like just playing in my head all the time. It's great. Yeah, I'm glad we, it stopped, though. Yeah, because well, we were that close. Mm. Yeah. And, and you tried to play the music to when you were filming to yeah. get the gesture. Yeah, yeah. But unfortunately, everybody else was about two feet away, <laughs> listening to it 250 times a day. Yeah. But it was good. Could I've got it in my head right now, now that we're talking about it. <laughs> well, it is 35 variations of the same tune. Yeah. But with lovely crumb horns and old, yeah, old yeah. Renaissance instruments that Stuart found. And he was a, a violinist composer. He, yes. He, he did other yes. work with, with Armand. He did. He did the music for Adam. Yeah. Um, i trying to think what else. He died about five he years ago. He died about five years Very sad. He uh, suddenly got died. He, yeah, it went downhill very quickly. It went down, he suddenly got diagnosed with cancer. That was it. It was really sad because yeah. such a lovely guy. Yeah. yeah. Really amazing musician. I mean, yeah. he was a, well, I mean, jazz folk, classical, yes. yeah. fiddle player, basically. Yeah. yeah. Really lovely. A bit on top of the pops and the. Yeah. And the, yeah. And the I don't know how. Did you introduce me to him? Or, or possibly. Possibly. Because he was a um, Bristol guy. Because so. he, he was the partner of one of the women who was who was doing costumes. She actually still does costumes for mm. action drama. She, we found her, and she was making. I think she probably when we were doing Babylon, actually, it might have been then. Oh, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, we, this lady alien came in, mm. and she knew this chap, Stuart, mm. um, who was lovely. But it is a good soundtrack. Yeah, I'm very, yeah. very pleased with the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. Bumped into her a couple of years ago, actually. She did the costumes for the yeah. Evening News as well. Uh, was it some mill down to Frumway by just my chance? She's been busy. And you've got more, more than a soundtrack, it's a kind of soundscape, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was, that's exactly what yeah. we're trying to do, soundscape. It, it, actually, to me, it sounds very crude now. Like we didn't kind of refine it enough, you know. Yeah. We kind of got the rough the rough idea of... Yeah. It, yeah, I, I can't, I honestly can't even remember 
recording it or how we did it or what <laughs> at all now. Um, was it Stuart as well? Yeah, that was with Stuart yeah, as well. Yeah. But I remember it being fun because we were just picking things up and it was almost like um, uh, it's almost like creating sound effects. We were mm. just picking yeah. up things. So what does this sound like? Yeah. What does that sound like? We had good air raid sirens. I remember that in, in Wall Street. Oh, do we <laughs> I'm sure we had that's quality. Yeah. The we should probably wrap this up. Yeah. Um, but I'll ask one more quick question. Um, by the point you made lip sync, were you conscious of a, a brand environment? Were you conscious of a, an identity that was carrying through? From a bit, a bit. I think because I think mm. that the sort of, I mean, what we what we become known for from um, conversation pieces was was. Kind of a realism, realism yeah. naturalism. You know, that, that, that's what I regarded Arpen as when I joined. Yeah. It was like that was the yeah. brand. So yeah. I was yeah. the brand yeah. working yeah. to. Yeah, and then undoubtedly Nick changed it all with Creature Comforts. I think mm. that, yeah. uh, and and Morrison Gromit, obviously. Yeah. But we did have. Yeah, we had a clear, a clear identity, um, and those that, that same period when we were doing TV commercials. Um, we were, very po- we were very popular, and and you know, Nick, the Barry's talking about animating bras and and things like that. So it wasn't all naturalism at all, but we we started from that point, yeah. And and then and then proved to be good at very good at puppet animation, you know. So um, yeah, and, and then there's a period when if if you want if you wanted something, mm. uh, apparently three dimensional, to move expressively mm. you know we, we were the go-to guys absolutely because mm. mm. you know it, it was a days for cg so mm. there was no alternative yeah. and so part of that was also on the commercial side was the, the slightly some of the what we now call visual effects the effects you yeah. um and that's you know, like the enterprise 64 if you did that now you didn't cg mm. but yeah. golly, odd, oddly enough we'd got an art director to do some the whole idea is it's set in a kind of victorian museum yeah, yeah. Um, and we got an art director to try to do some sketches, and got him through in a few sketches. Mm. I remember going up to the agency, a big agency in London, huge, WCRS, wherever they were, huge agency. Mm. So and they kept picking out Goddy's pictures. God, it's only 18 years old, or whatever you were, you know. <laughs> so he just you know, he'd been with us like two weeks, yeah. and they loved his bold. They were just they were just black felt tip, very bold images of yeah. a, a contemporary modern sort of art gallery almost, yeah. as opposed to a traditional small-scale Victorian provincial museum. Um, and that's the kind of way it went. Mm. So, and that led to other stuff, because then, mm. you know, we obviously did it on that in terms of the, the different look. Yeah. And as Pete says, you know, then Creature Comforts came out, and that led to the Heat Electric campaign, and that led to the Chevron campaign, and, yeah. you know, or anything with... In fact, we had one, I can't remember what it was, we ended up saying, we to do a show rule which is not talking animals. Anything yeah. but talking animals. We're getting so typecasted, for God's sake, this is crazy. Yeah. But I think, but there weren't, but we didn't have that much competition. There was an yeah. outfit called Clearwater who were quite well established mm. in what we now call visual effects mm. field. Lots of sort mm. of railo ads and stuff like that, mm. quite technical stuff. Um, Cosgrove Hall weren't doing commercial work at all. And who were we competing against? a little bit not, but not, not much really but there's almost and nobody doing it yeah and there's nobody doing this character based no. yeah. stuff yeah. 
in commercials in the way that we did it. People do quite technical stuff, but nothing of this character. Uh-huh. That's the sort of thing. But that's why it blew me away because I'd never yeah. seen. When, up when um, okay. you have a photo, I saw. Uh, <coughs> I can't remember which one it was now. But the, the, um, down and out. Yeah. First time I saw Down and Out was the first time I'd really I'd, I'd seen Morph, of course. But I'd yeah. never seen plasticine being animated. Yeah. And to yeah. see I the change of Heart. Yeah. 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 That's right. That would be another another podcast, yeah. another <laughs> whenever that anniversary. There is one thing, one more thing yeah. about Australia. I just wanted to mention that yeah. because which has been, been back in my mind all this time. It's a matter of interest that having done that recording with Bill Perry, mm. having got the two hours or whatever it was mm. of great material. Mm. Um, the interesting thing was that for a while there, I toyed with making that quite a serious film as well. Like, uh, be- and, and because in his story, uh, he was working at the BAC yeah. Aircraft Corporation, like uh, film, and they got bleached, they got bombed, uh, and he was clearly quite traumatised, you know, yeah. and, and that, you know, PTSD was was part of his story. Yeah. He didn't make much of it, but it was in there. Yeah. And you know, I toyed with taking. It's, so it's interesting how, just by, by choosing the material, yeah. I could have taken the the serious stuff or the mm. the comedic mm. stuff. You had going equipped already. I had going equipped, so I thought, so, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, which clearly, which I must say, people never. And also, he was so self-effacing as a as a raconteur. Wasn't yeah. He? He was always putting the comedy yeah. side of it. Yeah, yes, that's right. Yeah. So it's I true mean, to his character. Yeah. Yeah. The thing yeah. I, I like about War Story and Creature Comforts is the audio and visuals are sometimes in conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, what yeah. he's remembering isn't what, but whatever. Yeah. And I love that. Yes. Yeah. 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 <coughs> and, that, and, that, and that's the that's joy. Animation. Yeah, that's animation. And that's yeah. the joy of Land Fox Pop. You can take yeah. this very raw, unscripted material. Yeah. And suddenly it does something completely else. But then there's a fun. completely different. <coughs> and then, you know, that's an interesting case in point because, I mean, it's so crude. Yeah. It's yeah. so crude as a film. Yeah. But you, you get across this, you know, this whole miscommunication, complete miscomprehension mm. by both sides. Yeah. Um, and it was, it, it, it stood up on its own. And I think part of what we learned when so we listen to these tracks oh. is how most conversation is as tedious and dull. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and how repetitive it is. Yeah. And even, you know, we did primary days for that was just a very tedious conversation that yeah. Kitty had 400 times. There are a lot of um, grammatical mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I noticed when I was working on yeah. Canvas. There's so many yeah. mistakes in um, sort of syntax and grammar. Syntax and grammar yeah. 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 That actually, when you just have this kind of conversation, yeah. your, your brain kind of wipes it away because it kind of knows yeah. what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. When you listen to it back, it's, uh, it's, it's quite bizarre. It's quite strange because yeah. what we would do, yeah. pass the cakes over yeah. to yeah. Um, <laughs> What we actually did to get to where we wanted on the tracks, we would we record it on like, quarter inch. We'd transfer it to cassette. And then we'd actually, we would transcribe yeah. the lines. And then literally, you'd cut those lines up. And of course, you were transcribing it literally. Yeah. And you yeah. read it. I mean, no idea what this means. And then we had a, on those sort of two de- ghetto blaster things, yeah. those little edits on the tape itself to try and bring it together. But it was, got his point, if you read it, it often made no sense whatsoever. Mm, yeah. Um, it only made sense. And often, mm. so although we often put the script together literally as a cut and paste, yeah. of, of cut out line to dialogue, yeah. 
you had to go back and say, actually, will this cut together? Because the intonation, the tone, and the context may not work at all. Yeah, I find it interesting to watch films, uh, fi you know, fictional films, non-documentaries, but that try and replicate naturalistic yeah. dialogue, oh, but yeah. still, st it's still very contrived. Like if you, yes. you want to watch like a Mike Lee film, for example, mm. yeah. it might not be scripted, but it's not naturalistic yeah. still. Yeah. They're not saying anything redundant. Because yeah. why, why should they? Yeah. There's a, good, there's a good moment in um, Lost Story when he, uh, he can't, when he loses his place. Mm. And he, say, and oh, he, he, he says, Was yeah. that number five or number 16? Yeah. And then he calls to his wife to ask her. Mm. And then the, then the interviewer says, You know, he says, We're recording. I think he's recording. Yeah. We're recording. And, the, and Bill says, Shut off, shut that off. Yeah. And, then yeah. the, and then the camera pulls back to reveal the sound recorder. So mm. it's kind of. So mm. that's un that's unusual. That's unusual in um, mm. in any documentary, actually. Yeah, he's self-aware. He's yeah. self-conscious about the recording. Yeah, but yeah. well, all we are as a filmmaker, yeah. you know, we're, we're acknowledging the acknowledging the artifice, but then it's, yeah. a, it's a double artifice because it, yes, because it's a cartoon as well. But there, there must have been viewers who didn't realise it was uh, real people who thought that it was a scripted thing. I they were so used to seeing scripted movies. I wonder. Mm. That was Alex Dudok DeWitt in conversation with Peter Lord, David Sproxton, Barry Purvis, and Richard Golly Starzak, uh, reminiscing about Arman and Lip Sync. And uh, fantastic, fantastic conversation. Really, really happy uh, that you were able to share it with us. Yeah, thank you. And that we, in turn, were able to share it with the listeners. Some sadder news, I guess, that sort of ties in with Arman insofar as it's been his kind of base of operations for the last few years. You would have to have been under a rock the last week to miss the news that Richard Williams passed away. You know, there's a sort of phrase like, you know, the industry was reeling from the news. I've never seen an industry reel more mm. than um, with this news. Like, you know, people obviously, when someone, you know, influential passes away, there's plenty of eulogizing and sentimentality and paying tributes. But this absolutely dominated social media uh, and actually at the time of recording is it's still continuing to do so it's almost disappointingly rare that when we have a loss in our industry it will cross over into sort of mainstream news but this obviously was one of those occasions and yeah of course it would be ludicrous to not mention it in the podcast and he obviously was a big influence i'm sure on all of us or had an effect on us in some way or other this really to me seemed to kind of come out of nowhere yeah he was no spring chicken it just feels a bit unreal it felt like he was just never gonna go away he was he was no spring chicken you're right but whenever you saw him he seemed like this boundless ball of energy he seemed like there was just so much left in in him and now yeah uh, even up until like a year ago he was still as excited or as uh, as giddy about animation and the possibilities of animation and and he just seems so full of, he's so exuberant and, and just ready to make more art, make more films. You know, uh, I, I always feel bad saying so full of life, you know, when, when the obvious has happened. Uh, but he did. There was this, um, I think part of that is just he had this kind of relentless drive to improve his craft, which um, I don't think necessarily all, all animators have, although if you want to be truly great, you probably need it. But he kept, you know, he kept pushing himself, pushing himself, working seven, eight-hour days into his eighties. And um, when he made Prologue, his his final film, uh, when did it come out? A couple of about four years ago, two thousand fifteen. Fifteen, yeah. He, I remember him saying in interviews at the time, you know, this is 
I think this is my best work or this is the first work I've done where I'm not embarrassed mm. by the results or something. Um, but, you know, however self-deprecating he might have been, I think he, the, the, the point was that um, he constantly had a goal. Like he, he kept kind of pushing the goal a little bit further away from himself. And uh, that's, that's going to keep you going. You know, that's, that keeps you enthusiastic, keeps you, keeps you working, uh, keeps you sane and, um, or maybe insane, I don't know, but, uh, when I saw him on stage last November, it was so no, just barely over half a year ago, he was presenting a new print of the Thief and the Cobbler, um, his great kind of unfinished masterpiece uh, at the British Film Institute. He introduced it and then he, on the Q&A afterwards, he talked for about an hour. And um, like you say, Steve, he was just like, he kept, he kept kind of standing up from his chair and, and illustrating um poses from his animation you know with his body he was he was basically acting it out on stage like you know it was nuts you know he was he was so full of life and his whole team from the thief and the cobbler the great artist roy nesbitt and uh, neil boyle they were all there some of them including roy uh, roughly richard's age and they were all there just full of energy um it was it was quite a sight really mm. Especially after coming after that film, which is just like nonstop energy. <laughs> yes, it's it's kind of infectious. Yeah, I remember. The, I think the last time I saw him, it was at a kind of pro, not private, but it was a kind of a, a graduate screening thing at Ardman. They do a, a course uh, specifically for character animation that goes for a few months out of the year. Yeah, he, I don't think, was directly involved in that, but he was present at the presentation of their reels at the end of the course. And um, he got up and he gave the most like genuine, impassioned speech about how enormously impressed he was with everyone. Mm. It was impressive work, to be fair. I mean, for the most part, there were a couple that maybe didn't, you know, progress as far as the others. But, you know, by and large, they were learning a lot of, you know, key fundamentals of character animation that get uh, missed out of a lot of other courses and things like that and he was so excited that they were getting it because <laughs> obviously that's kind of you know when you think of the animated survival kit and the lecture series and a lot of his other presentations that's kind of been a big aim of his i never got the impression that he was like everyone needs to animate like richard williams and make films that look like no. the thief and the cobbler but that they you know he was excited that they were bringing these characters to life fundamentally yeah that was well that was the main point of his book wasn't it is that this is these these are just the kind of uh it, it's an instruction manual but not a an exact instruction manual this is how animation works you know you will leave the rest up to you if you know how it works like this you can do it in whatever style you wish you know that was his kind of mantra to, to a certain extent wasn't it mm. you mentioned the um the presentation of the new print and i'm sad i never got to see one of those projections but i you know it had been happening a few times over the years as far as i recall he was presenting a version that i mean i know that in some of the press releases we'd get sent they'd call it a director's cut but i don't think it was ever quite as complete a vision as that term tends to suggest my understanding is that everything is more or less in the right order and there's no matthew broderick <laughs> but some of the footage was still not like cleaned up is that more or less right yeah that's basically right i mean i've never seen any of the bastardized versions so actually this was basically the first time i was watching the film so i don't know exactly how to how it compares but um essentially yeah you're right 
there's there's none of the Matthew Broderick. There's um, the film. The scenes are more or less in their order. Most of the scenes are complete. Some are still in kind of very raw kind of animatic state. Uh, some of them are missing color or unfinished in other ways. But it's all complete enough that you can follow the narrative easily. You know what's going on. Um, and it's definitely complete enough that you get a sense of like how breathtaking that animation was. This is before, so, well, I guess it was made, well, it was made over the course of about 25 years, right? He was working on it from the 60s. Hmm. But really, by the time it was reclaimed by the finances and put out in the early 90s, a lot of his rivals were using kind of rudimentary computer animation to help them achieve certain movements or camera movements or, you know, certain bits of dynamic staging. But he was just doing all of that with, uh, you know, ink on paper. Uh, he wasn't resorting to computer. But 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 the animation is so sophisticated that you'd be almost fooled into thinking he is using computer. Like, just this one of the, one of the things that's happened since he passed away is just an outpouring of clips. Just he's got he's such a clippable animator. Or mm. tweeting little twenty second clips of sublime character animation or whatever. And I was rewatching some of them and thinking. How is how is it all so dynamic? How is he moving? Everything stays in perspective, and yet the camera is just restlessly kind of diving into diving into the background. Or in the Thief and the Cobbler, he plays with kind of Islamic art perspective, which is a bit different. So you've got a character moving against the background, and then suddenly you realise actually the background's on the same plane as the character, and the character kind of smashes through the background and, and enters into a whole different realm. It's just magical. Mm. The war machine sequence has been one that's really kind of uh, yeah. set everything up, you know, in terms of everyone's looking at it going, wow, this is incredible. It goes back to what we were talking about, Arpen. These are techniques that, as, as you say, Alex, were not, well, they're not done with any kind of computer assistance. You know, these were, these were technical animators. These guys had to really kind of understand the, the sort of, you know, geometric mathematical kind of way of animating, but also they had to en enter that kind of with a, a real understanding of the art form as well and movement and craft and it's it's absolutely incredible work and whether it's character animation and we think for example of uh zigzag uh the uh the vizier like uh, playing around with the cards or we think of the war machine sequence or the sequence where uh tic tac's going through the um is it is it no it's tack isn't he uh it's called tack was he called tic tac in a version tack's going through the uh uh going through the um the palace and there's this sort of mc escher-esque uh, uh sequence it's just absolutely mesmerizing work and then you look at prologue as well the, you know that that was uh submitted uh, a few years ago for the uh, the academy awards and you think of the tension in prologue <laughs> there's a there's a moment in prologue that every man just crosses the legs instantly uh, at, at um, but it's it's the drama and the pace that's been built up from there, and the fact that that film is made, it's all on paper. There's no backgrounds, there's no cells, it's all drawn. It, I mean, in, in one way, it, it reminds me of live action filmmaking. I think Richard Williams must have spent a lot of time studying live action film language because mm. often in traditional two D animation, you know, the camera doesn't move too much. You know, it keeps it conservative. It might pan left and right or but he moves into the frame all the time and pulls back and looks at characters from all different angles and doesn't he doesn't cut as much as he could you know he, he keeps things within one shot just decides to move around within it instead 
but I mean the amount of work that must have gone into it man it just makes my head yeah <laughs> interesting that he's known for the relatively static who framed Roger Rabbit then yeah I just can't think of anyone else who is able to convey that kind of quality of movement and that firm consistent understanding of anatomy uh, without any kind of previs or CG assistance, especially as regards existing in, you know, a very realistic space. Even when you don't see background details, the space they're in makes sense when the camera's on the move. And the animation on the people, you know, it's incredibly um, impressive. The animation on the animals as well, like the insects and the birds in Prologue, is absolutely stunning. Mm. Just sort of drawing on brilliant observation. And that, I guess, is another big component of what just sort of separated him. He was just an observer and had such a great intuition. You know, I don't think he was ever able to kind of turn that off. Because mm. you see it in the work. Like, you know, there are people who they maybe let some areas of their artistic studies or knowledge slide a bit. Mm. But I imagine he was probably you know, life drawing until the very end. And it's an amazing notion to have that just ingrained in you and kind of just know what to do and where to take the character. There's that brilliant uh, moment in, I think the documentary is called something like The Thief That Never Gave Up. And it's uh, Richard Williams following people around, uh, uh, is it Golden Square in Soho where... Uh, where, where, and, and just saying, oh, that guy's walking like this, so it's one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. And then he starts following somebody else and doing a different type of movement. You know, the, the guy was obsessed with motion. The guy was obsessed with uh, uh, the way things moved. And, and it, man, it really came across in his work. And it's amazing we're picking all these absolute kind of essentials for animation. We're picking the animated survival kit. You can talk about Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You can talk about Prologue. You can talk about The Thief and the Cobbler. And you're talking, we've not even talked about his commercials and the fantastic commercials that uh, the pro, uh, um, his, his uh, company created over the years uh, and the, the, the rate of animators that actually came from that studio that he fostered uh, the, uh, over the years. I mean, wow, what a legacy. What, what was his, he had a studio space in Ardman lately, but I, I never really knew where, how much kind of creative contact he had with Ardman's animators. Was he kind of left to his own devices to do what he wanted, or did he mentor animators at, at the studio? Or do you, do you guys know how how that worked? I have a few friends who have been there over the last few years, and from my understanding, it was never in any kind of formal sense. He was just a presence, and quite a few people I know who have been at Gas Ferry Road. You know, they've been, I think, shaken up a little bit by this because, you know, they had become very fond acquaintances. Mm. Like, he hadn't closed himself off, you know, locked himself in his office to not be bothered. He seemed, by all accounts, to be someone who was very approachable and just very interested. It's entirely possible that he maybe took some people under his wing in some context or other. I, I don't know anyone, like, personally. Yeah who've mentioned that, but I think they were just very happy to have him there, mm. you know? Because yeah. Prologue, like you said, it was a few years ago that it premiered, and my understanding was that it was, you know, it's, it's as the title would suggest, indicative of something a bit more longer form, and I remember 
Uh, I think when we had him on last and various other sort of public events, he would refer to this ongoing project under various different titles, usually sort of around the theme of, I hope I finish this before I'm dead. Um, That's what he said in our interview, isn't it? You know, I can only assume that as it's been a few years, he'd made more of a dent in it since Prologue. My understanding was he was continuing to work on the project that Prologue came out of. So I don't know. I mean, maybe there's more from Richard Williams that will be at some point curated or put together in some kind of way that we'll be able to enjoy and appreciate. That's a nice thought. Um, what I'm hoping for is the the prints of the Thief and the Cobbler, which has been presented at the BFI, to come out on Blu-ray or DVD. I mean, there's it's, it's crying out for that. It was basically approved by Richard Williams. It was as close to an approved version as there was. Um, and the film, you know, there's clips of it on YouTube. It's been released in bowdlerized forms over the years, but it deserves to, to, to be seen more widely. Yeah. I think we should, we should start lobbying, I don't know, <laughs> the British Film Institute to put that out. I'd be fascinated to do a bit of a deep dive into what the legal situation is with it. I think, yeah, but- that might be a problem. Uh, I think that was the main reason why those unfinished yeah. scenes were unfinished. Oh, probably also just because they were started so long ago to get a consistent end result would be quite hard. Yeah. Well, well didn't Miramax own it? I think they did the Ferris Bueller version. Uh, right. Maybe they still have their claws on it, but that, that would have been over, what, 25 years ago? I do know that things kind of have a, a shelf life as far as who owns what. We're doing the dig now. We're finding out. We're, we're going to figure. We're not leaving until we've figured it out. And it, and with, and the DVDs are pressed. The squiggly <laughs> boys are on the case. <laughs> well, there's a win. There's a way, guys. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Alex. Thanks for having me. I've listened to this podcast so much over the years that it's going to be weird to hear my voice on it, <laughs> to say the least. But I look forward to it. Some recommended further listening, if you're interested in hearing more from this episode's podcast guests. They've been gracious enough to be on with us several times over the years, but the most relevant occasions would probably be episode two, where we featured Barry Purvis discussing next alongside his other amazing work. Richard Golly Starzak joined us in episode 11, and David Sproxton and Peter Lord were featured in our 40th anniversary Ardman special, episode 58, which also featured Nick Park. We were incredibly privileged to have had Mr. Richard Williams join us on two occasions in episodes 17 and 33. You can find all of these if you navigate to the podcasts section of the site. A couple of tiny plugs before we wrap it up for you Brazilians out there. My film Sunscapades will be returning to your wonderful country this week as part of a special presentation by the Mumia Underground World Animation Festival previously screened the film in competition during their 16th edition last year. The screening will take place August 27th at 7.30pm at the Ositio Art and Technology Centre in Florianopolis. The following night, my previous film, Throw, will be getting itself a screening, something of a rarer occurrence these days, but I'm happy to say it can be seen at the Sakhalin International Film Festival on the Edge in Russia. That'll be part of their short animation for adult screening, taking place 5.30pm at the Chekhov Centre in Sakhalin. Closer to home, the world-renowned Encounters Festival here in Bristol will be back this September from the 24th to the 29th, 
Full Squiggly crew are planning on being there, so swing by, say hello, and check out the amazing program on offer. The full schedule and passes are available at encounters.film. Thanks again to Alex Dudok DeWitt for sharing this fantastic chat with us, and thanks to all the lip sync talents for being involved. You can follow them all on Twitter. David Sproxton is at Sproxton Ardman, Peter Lord is at Pete Lord Ardman, Barry Purvis is at Barry Purvis, and Richard Golly Starzak is at Mr. Golly, Mr. spelled M R. You can also follow our special guest host, Alex Dudok DeWitt, at Dudidoc. That's D-U-D-E-Y-D-O-K. I'm at Ben L. Mitchell, and Steve is at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. Squiggly is at Squiggly. We're also on Instagram at Squiggly Animation and Facebook.com slash Squiggly Magazine. Come find us. We crave the attention. That's all for now. Until next episode, happy animating.